Thanks yeah. for coming over, Well, No, no, pleasure's all mine. Thanks for inviting me. I was saying before that, like, uh, you're just such a nice guy. And you're like, you're like, I see you as like a very wholesome, I think you're so wholesome. And uh, like the cool, in like a really, really cool way. So I think this is something like people seem to think. And I don't know, I don't quite get why. So something really interesting um, I kind of find in school is, because uh, I work in a secondary school, is um, a lot of the kids when they talk to me will say, sir, how come you're always in a good mood? And I find it really weird because I think of myself as quite a grumpy person. So um, I kind of wake up in the morning kind of in a full mood and I kind of go and make my porridge and, and I'm in a kind of grumpy mood. And then I go into school and I'm like, hi guys, how are you? How's your day? And they seem to have this this view of me as this kind of like really nice, universally happy person. And I don't really think I am. But, but you were saying before that you, you on, in the mornings when you wake up to go to work, you're pumped and happy. Yeah, I'm super excited. Like, I suppose, yeah, maybe. So maybe you're just describing like when you first get out of bed, you're kind of like groggy and a bit... Uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe like my pers- my impression of myself doesn't really match up to how I actually am. So like maybe I think of myself as fairly grumpy, but actually I'm fairly light-hearted quite a lot. Interesting. So, well, yeah. so maybe there's some contradictory kind of emotions going on, I guess. Yeah. So it's like that your certainty doesn't conform to the truth, sort of thing. So I think I'm this kind of person, but actually I'm not this kind of person. Right. So yeah. Now I wake up and I'm normally pretty excited. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to teach this class today about something in history. Um, like the feudal system and I get really excited thinking about that lesson because the first thing we do is we um, have the year seven children which in the UK sorry in England not in Scotland (laughs) means um, that they're roughly 11 years old is we have them draw a pyramid and we have them organize the school hierarchy into the pyramid so they put the head teacher at the top and then the students at the bottom and something they always notice is um that the power structure is not related to the authority structure. Hmm. And I find it so interesting that children notice this. But you have the students do this as an exercise? Yeah. To map out the power relationships in the the institution of the school? So they notice that if the head teacher of the school were to randomly quit, the school would still run. (laughs) Like if you were to have a breakdown or something awful were to happen to him, he's a really nice guy and I'm not wishing that on him Um, (laughs) in case he's listening, which he's not. Um, But if something like that were to happen, the school would open the next day. If none of them were to turn up, the school would not open. So they recognise that they have so much power, but my God, they've got no authority. Mm. So like in the classroom, I'm the authority figure. If they don't acknowledge that, there's someone above me and there's someone above them until eventually it gets to the top guy and he's got ultimate authority. So this and I find of, that kind of interesting. That yeah. Kids that's, notice this that's, really super quickly. Inter- that's super interesting. So this mapping exercise that they do, did you invent this or uh, why do they do that? That, I, sounds, that sounds like a I didn't, anomalously radical kind of like a creative exercise. Maybe. Um, I didn't invent the exercise, but I think maybe I... I was the one who highlighted to them that, ah, there seems to be this weird tension you guys have drawn out between the most powerful person in the school isn't the most, or the most important person in the school isn't the most powerful, um, or what have you. I just find it odd that there's any uh, institutional support for having the students become at all aware of these things. Like, when I was going to school, the, the power structure of the institution could not have been more opaque. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I mean... You know that there's, like, a principal, and you know you, like, don't want to go to their office. If you get sent to their office, you're kind of fucked. Yeah. And you know there's, like, vaguely other forms of power. There's, like, you know, the superintendent or something like that, which was, like, the 
uh, kind of like next level up. It's like, like the if idiot. you do something so bad that the principal can't even deal with it or something like that, there's like some vague other type of enforcer, I think was called the superintendent, something like that. But my memory of it was like, who exactly had what power over whom was all very, it was never explained to anyone, right? It was all like by word of mouth and by kind of vague associations okay. and, and fears about, you know, like who could punish you in what way if you were to, you know, transgress whatever particular punishments rule. are so weird because like if you say to a kid you're talking stop talking and then they continue to talk you can then say to them okay i want you to move chairs so you're not sitting with that person if they at that point say no you're screwed because you're like what do i do now um they're not acknowledging my authority to punish them and i don't have anything i can do and it's mm. really weird when that kind of like that acknowledgement of authority or that acknowledgement of just the power dynamic and how it's supposed to work in the classroom can break down because it all works in consent uh-huh. and the second they withdraw consent and they refuse to acknowledge your authority you're kind of screwed and it's like a ma- it's a massive confidence game isn't it it's like yeah. you have to convey you have to project that you could do any number of powerful things against them if they were to disobey but you you do that by like how you carry yourself right like you have to sort of embody someone who could do something <laughs> if yes. they were to transgress, even though, like, the reality might be you actually have, like, very few mechanisms of control. I can ask again, but in a louder voice, I think right. is perhaps the only other thing but I But if you do. act like someone who's gonna, like, who's in control and who is gonna, who would put me in my place if I were to act out, then that will, that will command obedience, right? Like, Definitely, yeah. It, and that's interesting it's how it works, you all know? A, it's all a big massive confidence trick. Exactly, yeah. So um, when I first started, I was like really naive and I tried to reason with them, um, like these 11-year-olds. Um, and they normally are super fair. So if you explain to them why they're in trouble, most of them tend to take responsibility for what they've done. Um, around about a month and a half, two months in, they realize that they don't have to. So they're like, um, no, nah, it wasn't me talking. It was actually someone else. And I'm mm. not going to tell you who. So um, initially I'd say to them, look, you seem to be talking over there. It's kind of my job to make sure that you get a good education because, you know, you need to be able to participate in projects and goals that you want to participate in. You need to have these set of skills or this set of skills to be able to do that. You're not going to do that if you continue to talk. So maybe you should move here. And like, you should want to move here because you want these things, right? And they just say, no. Like, oh, God. So eventually I stopped trying to do that and I said, right, okay, could you please move here? And they'll say, no. And I'm like, okay, it sounds like a question because I've started it with the word, could you? (laughs) And then I've said, please. Um, And then eventually it's just broken down to me grunting, like, and kind of pointing at a chair. Right, so Um, have you become stricter because of this? Like, you don't ask the question anymore, you just kind of tell them? um, Yeah, so... I think I'm getting better at my classroom management, which is the parlance they use for this. Classroom management just means crowd control. I should um, tell any listeners that you're a teacher, if that's not painfully obvious. Yeah, 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 sure, uh, sorry. But, you're, uh, but uh, to add to that, you're a relatively new teacher. so Yeah, this so this is very uh, much a learning process. You and you haven't quite figured out how to do all these things. So yeah. No, so like I'm learning. Um, and it's really in September, you said. so interesting, yeah. Because yeah. Um, I taught it actually at the same university as you. Um, for a while, I was like a tutor for a bit, and I've done these lectures as well. And right. weirdly, I thought I'd be a very good teacher because I did a lot of outreach where you go into schools and the kids sit there super engaged. And then you go into a school and you're a novelty for a while, and then the novelty of you wears off, and the kids are like, meh, 
you've kind of heard your weird accent. So tell me a little bit more about the kids that you teach. So it's a it's a fairly underprivileged area. Yeah, definitely. So Andover, I don't know what the main industry was. It seems to be, I don't know. It was never a mining town, I think. Um, but there's a lot of unemployment and underemployment there. Um, there's not a lot of high tech industries, so it's very close to Basingstoke. And Basingstoke seems to have taken like a lot of these kind of like big manufacturers, like you know. I don't know, I can't, Tesla maybe, I think they may okay. be in Basingstoke. Tw- Andover's famous because Twining's Tea um, is oh. made, or no, it's not made there, that's insane, is packaged in Andover. Okay. Apparently they're thinking of closing, um, mm. which is quite devastating. But there's a lot of underemployment in Andover, which means that there's a lot of social problems that emerge as well. I think at one point it was the heroin capital of the world, uh, not the world, um, of the UK. Really? Um, Andover? Yeah. Why is that? poverty mm. and a lack of means to occupy your time right um, a lack of investment in infrastructure as well um, interesting so it's just a tired town right and right. the people there have kind of given up because you would right mm. I mean like you've not got any income or opportunities yeah. and there's not these big arts festivals you get in these cool cities right. and things. So, what are, so what are the kids like uh, the kids can be very challenging at times they're one of the things I love about them um, is that they're not scared to tell you that they think you're wrong. <laughs> so, like, I'll say to them, ah, what about this thing? And they're like, nah, that sounds nonsense, you know. <laughs> and they, they're very much influenced by their parents. So a lot of them will say things that are homophobic or that are racist. And then you explain to them, or you, you start by saying, that's racist. And they'll say, no, it's not. And you say, well, actually, what you've said might suggest this thing. And they'll say, actually, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, you're right. So one thing I love about the kids is that they're super reasonable. Once you explain to them the presuppositions they're making and what they've said, they just, it's a mea culpa, straight away, they hold their hands up. And then they stop, instantly. And it's great. I love that about Interesting. them. Interesting. So they're not defensive? No, not the slightest. I've never they're met. kind of willful and assertive, but also willing to back up. I think they're down. confident enough to change their mind in front of their peers. Wow. Which, when I was their age, I definitely wasn't. Hmm. Um, it was more about being right than being... Or sorry, more about being seen to be right than actually right. And they're so they're almost all poor um, across the board, or is there variation? Or I think there's something like thirty to forty percent um, DAP students. DAP stands for something like disadvantaged. Okay, and like beneath some line. Of yeah, it'll, it's like a certain economic status. What percentage is that? About thirty to forty. Okay, um, so, so substantial amounts of very poor students, high. but some middle class students. Um, it's, it tends to be, the DAP students tend to be lower than working class. So they're people whose parents might be on an extremely low income. Right. Um, certainly not enough to pay for school meals or things. So they get free school meals universally. And the good thing about our school is they don't have to apply for that because there was a lot of social stigma attached to applying for a free school meal. Um, so if you're a certain economic category, automatically qualify That's for a cool. free school meal, yeah. which is good. Um, there's a few middle class kids in the school um, but yeah there's not I wouldn't say there's a big middle class presence it's very much a white working class place with a few you know people of colour there and, but it's majority white but ma- very vast majority white interesting because the reason I was asking about what the, the mix was like was because I feel like for school situations inequality is much worse than poverty itself I think it's just a hypothesis because 
I had a really unique sort of upbringing because I had the benefit of a good school system. I went to, I went to like a middle-class school system, but my parents were very poor and uneducated. And I, and so there was a lot of variance in my school. It was like a, it was a quote unquote good school in New Jersey with like a fair amount of, in an area with a fair amount of money. But there were also in that school district, like some, some sizable, uh, poor, like really poor neighborhoods. Okay. So I, I, in my experience, what was really f- perverse about, and this is, so this is like grade school. This is like, you know, from let's say like third grade to eighth grade or whatever is what I have in mind in particular when I'm talking about this right now. It's like that variance is what messes up people and their experience in education. Whereas I feel like if I just went to school with other poor kids, I would have been way happier and I would have learned more and I would have been like more, uh, I would have benefited more. Well, in a weird way, I would have, I probably would have been in terms of my material opportunities, I would have not benefited more. But in terms of like my own self-esteem and identity, and quality of life as a young person. I think that I think it would have been interesting. Better. So yeah, what I the reason I was at, so what I was wondering is because it, it, it's sort of uh, anomalous or or somewhat counterintuitive to hear that your students are very you describe them very fondly, you know, as, as very you know assertive and 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 uh, in, independently minded, but also very humble and willing to acknowledge when they're wrong and step back. Like, that sounds really cool. Like, I would have, like, I, that, but I don't recognize that in my educational kind of history. So I've definitely got a skewed perception because I tend to teach the younger years and in the school. The stats tell us that by the time they become older, their self-esteem is completely eroded. Mm. So they start off um, being quite confident. They're, they want to please their teacher and they mm. want to engage in the class. And then over the years, they stop doing that. They become less uh, socially engaged slightly more hostile to the school because they're made to feel stupid wow. you're speaking in a language they don't understand um, they don't have these discussions at home they don't um, have you know hours at the library each evening they can, some of them are carers like for parents and younger siblings some of them are like begging their neighbours for food um, I've had kind of a couple of kids come into school that haven't had breakfast or dinner because they've given the last remaining food in the household to a younger sibling Mm. Because their parents just aren't around, which is super grim. In, yeah, incredibly um, challenging. But like sort of. post year nine, that's a very common phenomenon. Okay, so that's interesting. So like I see my job very much as while I've got them in the younger years is to validate them as much as possible, mm. not just blindly when they say something silly. I tell them, "Ah, oh, that's a kind of fairly silly thing to say." But sometimes I'll just say to them, "It's, it's all about finding something to like about each one of them, even when they're giving you a hard time." If you can look at that kid and say, do you know what, you're giving me a hard time, but that's because you're energetic. Um, you're not bad, you're just misusing your energy. Mm. And my my job as your teacher is to get you to use that energy correctly. Mm. And some, you know, one of my favourite students is this girl. She comes in every day and she's beaming with this smile and she always wears this gargantuan, colourful bow in her hair. And every day I say to her, that's an awesome bow. <laughs> and every day she's like, I know. <laughs> and it's just that, like, self-confidence of, yeah, thanks, I am aware of this. That's awesome. You tell me um, that every day. Yeah, it's great. So you just love sort of boosting them as much as you can. Yeah, just celebrating who they are, and specifically with this girl with the bow, her name's Megan, who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know some of the kids would start to wear that bow, and then maybe a couple of kids would comment on it, and then over the years maybe some more kids would comment on it, and then she'd become self-conscious and then she stopped wearing that bow and Mm. then she wouldn't be the girl i know she'd be someone different 
this is such an integral part of her character that it would be a different person. And I don't want her to change. I want her to feel <laughs> confident enough to wear that bow to school and then until she's in her 30s or whatever to work. I want her to be that person. That's a beautiful thing, man. You think real deeply about each of your students. That's cool. Oh, that's really nice. I, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I just... Well, it, yeah, I mean, it shows like you like you have you've thought long and hard about this particular student. I'm sure you have further other students. Yeah, yeah, like... Um, that's, I, really, that's really cool. The, the, the difficult thing about teaching university is like... And I, I mean, I say this with utmost love and respect for my students... But I sort of get them a little too late. <laughs> you know, it's like the really formative parts of their life have already happened, and the, I, I think I think I think the British educational system. I mean, to be fair, I don't know that much about it, but what I do know about it, and from what I I observe the effects of it downstream, I think the British educational system it seems like incredibly repressive. It's and, so bad and deforming. I mean, the students. I mean, I love my students, and and the University of Southampton. A lot of the students are really cool, and yeah, but. There's this weird kind of like, and this is not about the University of Southampton per se, but I think student, university students in the UK across the board, there is this like unique kind of weird kind of automatism, obedience, kind of uh, competitive drone-like culture. It's that really is weird. Really striking and kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's this kind of like you know you kind of go to school and you have to get these results to go to university and you have to go to university to get a job where beforehand you go to university to learn about something you're interested in. And actually, the schools, they learn subjects on a very superficial level because it's all about remaining competitive in a marketplace. Right. Fuck that. So, like, history is really interesting and great, but, my God, Apple don't want people with GCSEs in history. What they want is someone with ICT today, but maybe tomorrow they want kids with these different skills. So it's all about... It seems to be very much a tool for employers... So schools are looking at what do employers right. want as opposed to how should we educate our children? What right. does it look like to be educated? So something I find utterly infuriating about the English, uh, and not Scottish, um, <laughs> university system is you do a degree in three years and you take one subject. Or in Scotland you do a degree in four years and you take at least three subjects in your first and second year. Mm. You specialise in your, in your third and fourth. But the idea is that you're not an educated person if you know only about one thing. Um, it kind of makes you an idiot, really. Like in the in the Greek sense, you know, you're literally unknowing. Right. Um, huh. You know, are you an educated person if you know an awful lot about chemistry, but only chemistry? I would say no. Um, well, and, and I think the, the really bitter irony also is that in, in today's, like, crazy fucked up economy where everything is changing so rapidly, and especially in the wealthy countries and the deindustrialized you know, sort of post-industrial countries, you know, carving out a life for yourself nowadays is this, like, extraordinary, challenging, kind of, like, creative enterprise, right? Like, you have to, um, there are very few sort of, like, jobs off the shelf, right? Like, some, there are some, right? Like, you can still be a teacher if you're hardworking and really lucky, right? Or you can still be a university professor if you're really lucky and hardworking, whatever. And there are some of those. But increasingly, uh, a lot of people, if they want to have a, promising future they have to kind of like invent it themselves or like carve it out through all different kinds of like entrepreneurial ventures oh, and it's like yeah. gig economy and everything is just changing so rapidly right so the irony is that to actually succeed in today's fucked up economy you actually have to be like a really stable whole well-rounded based person yeah definitely. you know what i mean like yeah. and and that th this is a really bitter irony that like we are training students in university with the ostensible intention to, to, to give them skills so they can find a good job. But what you actually need today 
you kind of can't teach in that way. Yeah, you definitely. Need the, you, need, you need this kind of, like... I, I think, like, in the university, if I was a university student today, I would put almost all of my time into figuring out how things like anxiety and depression work and how to have good relationships and what my, like, inner hang-ups are and what I actually want to do and what makes me feel good and who should my real friends be and who should my... Who should I who should I not be friends with? And these sort of like very practical everyday questions about how to live, basically, you know. And, and I think philosophy at its finest gets you at a lot of the the, the substrates of those more practical questions. Um, That's the original but, question, isn't it? It's like yeah. how should one live, or how should yeah, right? How do I right. live? But I mean, I think that if you, I think that in in today's sort of situation, spending three years trying to do all this coursework trying to get good marks just to get a first in your university degree to hopefully maybe if you're lucky like get a job at like a bank or something to me that's um that's a pretty unwise that's a pretty losing bargain and i think that actually if you spent all of that time and energy trying to figure out these more basic questions about but also very practical questions about how to live um you're actually be going you're actually going to be putting yourself in a better position for the reality when you get out, which is no one gives a shit about you. There are no opportunities and you have to figure out how to like, uh, how to invent a new life against the institutions. And you've got 27 and a half grand a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty grim. How did you spend your undergraduate years? If reading. it wasn't learning. Yeah, I'm reading and reading. I mean, I, in the middle of my university experience, I got the real kind of like intellectual bug and was like, I'm going to, I want to go balls deep into this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so once I got that, I was like, uh, just reading and writing. I became I mean, this really weird, pretentious bohemian wannabe. So like I'd kind of hang about in cafes in Glasgow, smoking Galois cigarettes, um, speaking in French sometimes, like very bad French. Um, kind of talking about Sartre without knowing Sartre really. That's cool kind of stuff. You gotta, uh, kind of you gotta like, start somewhere. You, definitely formative. It's cool. You um, fake it till you make it. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's so, it's right? so true. That's, I mean, that's like you have happened. to start by just mimicking the things that you admire, right? I mean, there's and there, that's a beautiful thing. There's not there's no shame in that. I think I learned very early in life that if I had any chance of having a good life, it was going to be through using my brain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had I grew up in a like it wasn't that bad of a family situation. Like my good parents, good honest, really good honest hardworking people who love me and they're still together and you know they never abused us or anything like that but they just didn't have that much money and it was like we grew up in a weird situation where um we kind of we like my parents raised me in my grandparents house my grandparents like were kind of middle class um and but my parents didn't have much education and they didn't you know i was the oldest they didn't really they were learning how to raise kids you know oh, um, nice. through me sort of that's um, kind of nice yeah it has, it's interesting um but anyway, make a very long story short, um, it was like not an ideal environment. I feel uncomfortable. I don't want to complain about it because lots of people have really fucked up youths where they're like abused in all different kinds of really fucked up ways. So it's not on that level, to be very clear. But um, there's a very particular kind of perversity to growing up in a poor, highly constrained nuclear nuclear family on the good graces of like a middle class outer family yeah and in a middle class neighborhood so it was that difference between my, me and my parents and everything around me that, w that was extremely jarring and so like 
I had friends that were poor kids, and I also had friends that were middle class kids. And I, I, I you know, I saw which way the wind was blowing very early. You know, like oh, okay. I, I was going to ask. I you realized that, that, like, I realized very early that I was kind of being. Of, of course, I wouldn't have put it in these terms, but I realized that I was kind of like being statistically um, predetermined to be poor and like fucked up and like do heroin and shit like that. Like that, that happens to poor white kids in New Jersey. Yeah. yeah um, I, I realized that that was kind of like my default. That was like what was going to be the default, <laughs> but I benefited from having these like middle-class kids in my, you know, proximity who I could at least like see and I could see how they talked and I could see how they talked about their future and they talked about going to university and they use different words than these poor kids who are using heroin and stuff. And so like I, I what I realized what was that, you know, all those behaviors and attitudes that those kids who seem to be on a promising pathway, all those attitudes and behaviors they had didn't come natural to, to me. Like I didn't have them, but when I would, you know, go into the library and read a book that I thought was really cool, I would get into this mental headspace where I was like, okay, I can figure out how to get what they're getting, you know? Like, I can figure it out by thinking. Yeah. And I had this this sort of radical sort of realization at a, at a certain point fairly early on, I think, where I was like, it's either I'm going to end up, like, being a poor, fucked up person who's maybe going to do heroin and do all this fucked up shit and have this, like, very un- unhappy life that I saw a lot around me, or this thing I'm doing when I'm reading this book in this library and this, like, this little bit of power that I can feel inside of myself, I'm going... I'm, it's either going to be that, or I'm going to use this power and this brain thing I have to fucking pull out all the stops and figure out how to get out of this and do what those middle class kids are doing. Um, and in some sense, that is, I think, what that was in like you know probably eighth grade or something that I realized that. Um, so then, but I was like never very disciplined, and I hated like doing bullshit homework and shit like that. Like so, I kind of channeled it into like my personal kind of like thinking and stuff like that. It was only in university that that kind of, like, reached a new threshold. And I was sort of like, well, this got me out of high school and got me into university, so I should double down on this intellectual thing. Okay. And then I was like, uh, I'm going to try to fucking get as smart as I can and try to be, like, a intellectual. <laughs> so it sounds like um, when you kind of were younger and you had kind of friends, it sounds like the working-class kids were very much had their lives predetermined, where the middle-class kids had their were, like, more actively agents in their lives so like they could determine which way they were going to go so they would have these hopes and aspirations where the working class kids were very much like uh i don't think that either of them had any sense like real sense of agency or i think they were both groups were being statistically kind of ushered into their different paths do you know what i mean but i think i think i benefited from the unique kind of like discrepancy that i inhabited the fact that my parents were poor and uneducated, mm. but I ha- I was slightly I was somewhat socialized into kids whose parents were had money and whose you know like one of the best predictors of whether you go to university or not is whether your friends yeah do, yeah you know? definitely so like when you think about that sort of thing I had this very weird kind of uh, upbringing yeah and I think that that yeah um, but I don't it's not like it's not like the the rich kids who were planning to go to university were, like, you know, had more kind of, like, conscious agency than than the poor kids. I think they were just doing what they were automatically kind of 
socialized in their upbringing. I suppose to that's think their norm, to isn't it? Yeah. And and the poor kids also were doing um, what it was kind of in their uh, environment to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I think um, the school I teach at is very much they assume they're not going to go to university. Um, so they all assume they're going to go to sixth form college, which is like a weird concept. So in Scotland, we don't have the schooling system at all. Mm-hmm. We just have primary school, then high school, and then university if you want to go. Um, but in England, they've got like preschools, then primary schools, then secondary schools, then sixth form college, then college, then university. It's so weird. Right. Um, but yeah, they all think they're going to go to sixth form college. And then you say to them, ah, what do you want to do if you go to university? They're like, oh, I don't think we'll go to uni. Um, because it's very alienating for them, mm-hmm. um, these kind of environments. A lot of them can't imagine a life outside the town in which they live because it just doesn't happen, um, which is kind of weird because I'm from Edinburgh, so like it's a very, very different social existence. You know, like It's very international and things. Hey. Hey. I'll just say goodnight. Oh, okay, goodnight. Ah, goodnight. Yeah, I'm going to sleep. Thanks How was your program? Thanks for coming in. Um, terrible, but entertaining. Excellent, excellent. Excellent. All right. So, um, bye. Cool, have a night. Good night. Um, well, that reminds me. We can switch gears randomly if you want. I was just in Edinburgh. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I did, yes. Yeah, I was very envious. I've not been home in ages. Yeah, I was um, only there for a day, but it was dope. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, awesome there. It's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminds, like, I just try not to think about Edinburgh because I live in Southampton now. And I'm like, ah, oh, this place is so bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, and Edinburgh's really, like, visually stunning. And there's lots, there's kind of, like, a vibe to the place almost. Oh, yeah. Even though, like, it's a really historic city. It's and cool. um, it's still like yeah, really cool. Like there's lots of like things going on there. Yeah, at one point I was like just going on a walk, some just walking around, and uh, I would just like turn a corner, and literally, like in this urban, totally urban little kind of like block, uh, I would like turn a quarter, and there's just like the massive green mountain there. Uh, it was awesome, and I was like, this is fucking wacky. Yeah, <laughs> this is though. weird. Why am I in a field all yeah. of a sudden? Yeah, yeah. It's Did you like, see Edinburgh Castle? I saw it, I think. Do you know it's on top of a volcano? Really? Yes. Wow. Uh, so, like, that massive... Like yeah, it? that's correct. Is it ever going to go off? Uh, apparently... Well, hopefully not. Um, could it? Um, I'm sure they studied this. Yeah. I th- I, I'm not really sure. I presume not. Apparently, the big hill at the bottom of the Royal Mile, which is called Arthur's Seat, um, is the volcanic plug for the volcano. Um, so I suspect one of the streets you turned down and saw this massive green mountainy thing was probably Arthur's Seat. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know why it's called Arthur's Seat. Hmm. Um, but yeah, Edinburgh Castle on top of a volcano. That's how tough the Scots are. It's not enough just to build a castle on top of a mountain. You have to, like, build it on top of something explosive. Have you ever been to the King Alfred in Winchester? Uh, like, to visit the statue, you mean? No, it's a pub. Oh, no. Well, apparently, it, it's actually where King Alfred used to do a shit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Who he and he was like that. Would, I believe uh, listeners can fact check this. But I, it was like the the King of Wessex. No, I think that's correct. Like, yeah. That was the unit. Only you know? in England. Only in England would they glamorize a place where a king <laughs> took a shit. They're like, oh, a king once took a shit. Oh, here, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that literally. I meant like. I meant like. Oh right, no. <laughs> so it's, entire, it's entirely plausible that they would. Yeah, he probably took shits there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I meant like I forget if it was like his headquarters or his house or what it was, but apparently the King Alfred Pub in Winchester is actually the site of where King Alfred did th- things. Did stuff. Uh, yeah, I forget what it was. I forget what it was. Um, 
Yeah, Winchester's cool. There's, like, some nice historical shit there. Here, it's, like, Southampton is so funny. It's, like, there's the bar gate. There's, like, this yep. thing for listeners. You know, Southampton is, like, basically, well, it was bombed badly in the in the war. So a lot of the historical architecture is kind of, like, uh, erased. Yeah, it's been obliterated. Yeah. And then it was sort of built up over, you know, the past several decades in a really kind of, like, unplanned, very commercialistic, confusing uh, way that's, like, not extremely elegant or... Uh, pleasing, but there's like a, there's like one remaining like strip of the old city walls downtown. You know, I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Um, and it's just like it's it's like a, it's just kind of like a sad thing. It's like here's a wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny though. Yeah, they don't really celebrate that wall enough either. Like they've kind of like hidden it with shopping centers and right and things. Although the irony is they just made this new mall, the West Key Two. Yeah. It's quite what, a nice building, actually. What's interesting, though, I thought it was going to be like a total disaster, and I would hate it, and it would be ugly as hell. But what's cool is it's kind of they did it around the Bargate area, that, so they it actually kind of opens up the wall, the nice old wall, and yeah, it, kind of it makes it look probably... like a little bit cooler, and uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think I agree. That sounds right. Um, yeah, it's kind of architecturally interesting, and all the u- universities' new um, accommodation buildings are kind of these kind of sleek silver kind of things with these multicolored window boxes and stuff they're kind of cool as well um so yeah maybe there's hope for southampton yet maybe i'm being unfair um it's all about the people and they're cool people yeah so you only need a i feel like you only need a handful of cool people to make a place perfectly fine yeah that's true that's true so tell me about pasolini i don't know shit about pasolini ah so pasolini is an italian film director who was murdered um he was an anarcho-communist and he made some very very controversial films he was Italian. I think I said... Did I say that? I think I probably it's said obvious. Um, yeah, his name's Pasolini. <laughs> it's pretty Italian. Um, he had an obsession with Catholicism and the Bible as well. So he directed a film called The Passion of St. Matthew, which is actually a masterpiece. And I didn't know about this film until one of my like rabidly atheist friends was like, Ah, have you seen The Passion of St. Matthew by Pasolini? It's a masterpiece. You need to watch this. And I watched it, and it was genuinely brilliant. It's about the life of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I think I've seen it. It's incredible. It's really I think good. I've actually seen it. I totally forgot that. Okay. I think that's um, the only thing by Pasolini I've, I've seen. It's really great. And um, it kind of shows Jesus as like an anarchist, communist, revolutionary. That's right, yeah. yeah very yeah. much like the liberation theology folk. Right. Um, it's kind of that reading of Christ. Yes, yes. It's one of those movies that's like, it's pretty slow. And if you have, you're, you're, you know, if you're attuned to kind of like contemporary, you know, plot tempos, it's, it's yeah. a bit of a slog. But it's like pretty badass. And it's really radical. cool. Yeah, He's um, it reminds me of. Have you ever read, a, uh, read or heard of the book called Zealot? I've not. No. By a guy named Reza Aslan. Reza Aslan is this guy who was like he was in the, he had, he was like in the media for a little bit. There was like a big hubbub around him several years ago because um, he was like talking about Islam or I forget what the hubbub was, but uh, pretty well known guy. He wrote this book called Zealot, and it's pretty badass. Um, He's not, I don't think he's like an anarchist or radical or anything like that, but it's very much of the view that Jesus was, like, not even figuratively, but, or metaphorically, but he was straight up like a political revolutionary. Yeah, Plain yeah. and simple. And he, and he was, and he was basically executed just because he was a political revolutionary and he was literally basically trying to overthrow, um, you know, Roman rule. And that was basically why they killed him. So it's like an extremely political, straight up kind of anarchist interpretation of like Jesus Christ, yeah. I think um, like Hegel, who's a philosopher I'm really keen on, like in his like early theological writings, 
was speaking off a lot about the life of Christ, and he thinks his main endeavour seemed to be to internalise good in a way that the Jews for Hegel had externalised. So he said um, the Jewish people have a kind of code of conduct which is written down and it's been passed to them. Um, and Jesus kind of came along and he was like, these things are all alien to you because they're external. Um, if you have an internal concept of the good, then that's a better thing um, because you can self-determine mm. in accordance with the good, which is going to be universal for each agent, but you can instantiate differently. Mm. Um, and that to me sounds like really anarchist. Mm-hmm. So it allows for a, a plurality of being um, and also it forces us to recognise the inherent dignity of each other as well. So I recognise that you are a vessel of the good or whatever and you're choosing to recognise and express um, your understanding of yourself as that good in your way and that's great. You know, mm-hmm. like you should be able to walk down... Southampton High Street with a luminous pink hair on a skateboard with a stud through your nose and I should be able to walk past you with a really dull academic book and a shirt and tie on and like we should nod and say hello and that should be okay because you know we're just we're the same thing we're just realising that in a different way and that's that's right Um, so that's what I like about Hegel's reading all the life of Jesus and actually I, I do think that is what Jesus is doing an awful lot of the time it's this idea that you in, you have an internalised good. Um, and it's not about just having a a rule book somewhere which you're reading. Ah, oh, what should I do? Should I give money to this homeless guy? Well, on page 443 of this book, it says, yes, Jesus wants you to think about it for yourself and think, well, what do I do here? Okay, cool. Um, That's really interesting. So I want to hear more about that. So, Because you, you're very into this um, sort of Catholic anarchist tradition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so how else would you sort of, yeah, just, I don't know, for our listeners, just, like, summarize that, or what, is that, how, what does that mean to you? Um, so I came about it through probably Aristotle. Um, so I'm super keen on Aristotle. I was raised Catholic. Um, and it was kind of like a weird synthesis of those two things, like this kind of, like, Aristotelian Catholicism, which I mean, anyone who knows about St. Thomas Aquinas will be like, ah, stop trying to pretend you're St. Thomas Aquinas. But I think Aquinas is right. So Aristotle talks about um, beings being functional like all things Aristotle says has a function and if you want to look at what its function is you look at what it does best so if you want to understand what a knife is you look at the knife in its context and it cuts good knives cut well bad knives cut less well than good knives mm. um, if you want to look at what a person is you look at what it does in its context good people reason well um, bad people reason less well um, for Aristotle so like Aristotle has this concept of ethics that isn't moralised in the way that we have so when he's talking about bad people he's meaning bad tokens of a certain type of thing um, mm-hmm. and then I started thinking more about how I was as a person and my mode of being and was I being a good token of my type and then I started thinking about Catholic practices and I like the element of community in Catholicism, which is a big, big part, and this idea of shared communion, and it's essentially an institution of reciprocal recognition, like where we recognise each other as equal, and a system of care. So there are like structures of care within the Catholic Church, which I really enjoy. 
something I always struggled with was this idea of God, like a personal God. Um, but there's again, I was able to be okay with this because a lot of Catholic theologians, like people who are really sharp, won't talk about God as if he's like some guy, like standing on his cloud with of his course. white beard, yes, right. uh, like deigning things. Right. Um, Which obviously so the, makes religion sound ridiculous. Uh, yeah, it's absurd, right? Right, so, like any smart religious person does not think that. No. Yeah, more or less. So, like, they'll think, um, they'll not see God as creator as separate from his creation. Firstly, because that puts a limit on God's existence, which you can't have because he's God. So you're going to have to have an idea of consubstantiality, which is a, an absurdly technical and complicated and horrible word. Well, it's a beautiful word, but, you know, really alienating. Um, so it's just this idea that God is inherent in the universe, but isn't reducible to any aspect of it. Right. So nor does he stand over it. Or so I say he, like it's a male pronoun. It's just like it. So it's being as such, not instantiated being. So then I thought, well, if that's true, or if that's something I can get on board of, then to be human is, and to be a good human is just to realize and express what one is. So, I started looking at what it was to be a free agent and what it was to be a good agent. And it seems like to be a, mm. to be free is to act in accordance with what you are. It's not just to do whatever you want, but with what you are. Right. And to be a good Catholic for me is to act in accordance with what I am and in accordance with the good. That's beautiful, man. So um, it's like there there's like an ethical obligation to be who you are. That's right, yeah. But, the, but it's interesting also because there's life is this puzzle where you have to find out who you are, right? Yeah, that's, and, so that's right. Like, yeah. part of acting is learning who you are so you get instant feedback from the world. Right. So if I think I'm a genius chess player without ever having played a game of chess, I'll play a game of chess and I'll lose. That's instant feedback. I know I'm not currently a genius chess right. player. The anarchist thing comes in because once I recognize that I'm the authority on my self-determination, then I don't need an external set of rules. I don't need to be told what the good is because that's something that's inherent in me and it's something I can realise and express through action. So again, it's this like ontologically kind of unity between right. agent and action and seeing oneself expressed in the world. I don't right. need an external authority to make me behave well. Right. And so, in fact, if an external authority is there, I'm not behaving well because I'm only doing the good thing because they're there. Right. That doesn't I'm, make me a good I'm, person. I'm totally picking up what you're putting down. I'm, I'm loving this. But this is why I want to know from someone who's like thought about this probably more than I have, to be honest. This is why I want to ask you how you respond to certain sort of questions about this. In particular, one I think that would jump out to anyone would be how, how you square sort of the anarchist component with, you know, everything you were just saying about how, you know, uh, one is ultimately one's own judge um, with obviously the institutional apparatus of the Catholic Church and this institutional cap apparatus is what kind of makes Catholicism Catholicism, right? That it's, it, it is this kind of, you do uh, kind of pay heed to the legitimacy of this sort of large overarching institutional structure. How do you square that with um, the do anarchist I... component? Or do you not have I mean, to? what do you mean, like, do you pay heed to the overarching structure? Well, um, let's say, I mean, just take a, one random example would be like, you know, the infallibility of the Pope or something like that. Right, like that all of these sort of traditionally characteristically Catholic tenets that basically boil down to the the shared understanding that the church is kind of the, the last arbiter of, of a lot of questions. Sure. Um, so the church acting as church 
might be infallible. But like sometimes, I mean, the church is a human construct, and there's going to be times where it acts as like any other political institution, which essentially it is, and it's going to get things wrong, um, and terribly wrong. And I don't think at those moments it's acting as the church, it's acting as a political institution. Okay, fair enough. I, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that, just informally, one might think um, that the anarchist direction would converge more, you know, logically with, let's say, like the more Protestant sects where you know we don't have to listen to this church right like you could read luther as a kind of sure. right like as, as a kind of like politically rebellious somewhat anarchistic kind of uh deviation from the catholic church so i'm just curious um how you see that like why would the anarchist component lead you to say no this is the true church ah cool right so um firstly like i do kind of like luther i like an awful lot of what he did what I don't like about Luther is his emphasis on an individual relationship with God. Mm. Now, that sounds really weird for me to say, especially as an anarchist. But the thing I dislike about Protestantism is this atomization of people. So, mm. like, you start seeing yourself as yes. an atomic unit instead of as a member and continuous with a community. And I think that's what separates Catholicism. Okay, And I it's like this, um, this idea of... Um, continuity with other members of your church. You're not a discrete individual. You're part of a community. And as such, you're placed under certain obligations, which you choose. Um, your obligations are things that um, don't stand over you as such. They're, they're things that you have... They're not oppressive. They set you free, these obligations. And this structure is a way of realising you're being better than you could were you on your own. So right. it's like the Marxist idea. Um, okay. Your flourishing can be achieved more and in a better way, as part of this thing, than it can be if you were to try and do it on your own. Right. And that's okay. what I like about it, is a continuity. I like that. I like that. I think the way I think about that is, because I, I mean, I think I'm a little bit, I might be a little bit, I'm probably, well, I'm, I think I'm certainly less Catholic than you, and maybe even less anarchist than you. I, I don't oh, know, no, I'm really sure know. Not true. But, but I'm also very, bas I'm, I'm basically very interested in this sort of uh, lineage also. And um, the way I kind of see it is that, you know, I believe in, like, absolute, unlimited kind of human autonomy. Um, that's the anarchist component. And, but I, I, am a, I am a universalist, I think, at the end of the day, in the sense that I do think that we do have to so, sort of hold up, we do have to hold ourselves accountable to, or we have to be held accountable to larger structures. And ultimately, there's only going to be one true final structure, um, maybe. And I think... That, that's complicated, but how do I put it? Like, the idea of one true church, I just fucking like that. Yeah. And it's hard, I mean, it's, it's. I'm, I'm speaking that, like, very informally about yeah, yeah, sort sure. of, like, intuitions and attractions and uh, affinities, you know? Um, I like this idea that we can have radical, unlimited human autonomy, but if we're all being honest, we should, in the long run, converge. Yeah, yeah. So and I, I see, and true. I and I see this idea of like the one true church, being, just the the that sort of hypothesis, really. That yeah, sort, yeah, that sort of that sort of formal expectation, that's rooted in an observation about like our fundamental equality and the fact that like we are ultimately, you know, of equal value, um, and as a species, like we're all just random instantiations of this like thing that we yeah, are. Yeah, you know what I mean? So like. 
on some basic level, in the long run, we all came from dust and returned to dust, and there's this sort of radical equality, right, uh, that, that pertains to, to human beings. And so, like, in all of the beautiful diversity of what we think and try to do in our lives and all the different crazy paths that we come up with through our, like, autonomous, creative living, you know, in the short run, it looks like it's going off in a million different directions. But at a systemic level, in the long run, all of those people, if, and this is, to me is the crucial precondition, if they're being honest, they're going to end up converging. And the idea of the one true church or whatever you want to call it, the universalistic kind of uh, religious uh, component to me is like holding on tight to the fact that we do have to converge in the end, not only normatively and ethically, because it's a good thing to try to all, you know, love each other and get on the same page. But, and this is what I find very interesting and kind of provocative. And I'm not sure many people have made this argument, but this is the argument I want to make empirically and in a positivistic sense and in an almost scientific sense that if we're all being honest, we can be absolutely free, but in the long run, we will end up going into the same place. And it's this sort of empirical, almost scientific uh, model of, of our true sort of human communion that is embodied in this, in this idea of like a large institutional structure of which there can only be one ultimately. And of which, although we're ultimately totally autonomous, we find ourselves always sort of returning to. Yeah, sure. So like that sounds, that sounds right. Um, I think normatively the only norm that you would really have and maybe this is the thing you're thinking of with regards to convergence is essentially acceptance so like you're not going to have any kind of oppressive structures mm. or things like this so you might want to be a black lesbian in a wheelchair um, and I should accept that mm. and that should be fine mm. and yeah that sounds good to me Like, <laughs> in, as long as you're not trying to force um, black lesbianism disability on me right. um, then I'm good you know like as long as you're happy to accept who I am and I'm happy to accept how you realize yourself then we're fine and what do you say to people who come at you with the gotcha about sort of like the obvious sort of corruption and problems that sort of are pretty endemic in the Catholic Church yeah I don't know what like what they expect me to say so people <laughs> say oh how can you defend the Catholic Church right. when there's so many child molesting priests right. and the you know the complicit attitude they took towards the fascist and the Spanish Inquisition I'm like yeah you're right like that's absolutely awful what do you want me to say like yeah. it's absolutely disgraceful and terrible not for a moment going to defend any of that right what does that mean does it mean that we should just throw out the entire institution because it has bad parts of its past well right maybe maybe not I don't know what it would look like to get rid of that heritage I mean you'd be you'd be maybe I mean, I blame all. I would blame all that stuff on the, on the Reformation. That's how you get out of that puzzle. Oh, that's so, a good like, idea, actually. The blame it on the pure. Protestants. Yes, the Damn church, the Protestants. The church yeah. was totally good and pure and absolutely true until Luther and the whole Reformation it ruined problem. it for everyone. That's what made them all child molesting people who were lost, who lost their way. Yeah, I mean, there was a massive like counter reaction, wasn't there? Um, where they tried to like just do the opposite, and the Enlightenment actually as uh, many great things as it brought us uh, also brought us a lot of terrible things and this kind of scientism that we all now have to live with is definitely a consequence of that I totally and agree with that, yeah. the way the church reformed and counter-reformed is also I think a consequence of that I, mean, I think the main like the main reason why I'm into religion and by the way I was raised Catholic so that's kind of my only real personal kind of anchorage to, to Catholicism I, the reason I'm interested in religion more generally is because I do think that 
for most of human history, it was the only real bulwark against unlimited exploitation. Um, uh, and there's a, an, a theologian who says that um, religion is anti-capitalist because it determines that we have at least one day where we don't work. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm inclined to see the entire social sort of function of uh, religion as essentially that. I mean, the way I see it is, or very early on in human species, people realized, like, in this will that we have to make things and buy things and sell things, this, like, functional sort of drive, the instrumental aspect of ourselves, we have to do things to survive, you know, we have to be functional, whatever, and we'll do that to survive and take care of each other. But people realized very early on that embedded in that is a seed of radical destruction. Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. And, and violence and aggression. And I think people just realized very early on in all societies, people realized this sort of instrumental, functional thing that we do where we try to, you know, make things better, embedded in that, if we let that get out of control... It's a violence. If we, get that, if we let that get out of control, then we're all going to turn each other into objects that are mere, you know, playthings for our own... Uh, personal interests. Yeah, that's and it's gonna and, and the entire universe is going to descend into hell, basically. And I think that hell is basically like uh, what you will get if all of the sort of ethical religious structures that put limits on exploitation, if you remove all of those structures, you're going to get hell. And yeah. I think that's like the, what the very idea of hell was always trying to teach us. I think so Is too. that like we have to have limits and we have to create communities where we put limits on exploitation. And, I mean, it, when you see religion in that lens, you're sort of like the whole modern, modernity and the Enlightenment is like a massive suicidal kind of like species um, innovation that that is like way more harmful and scary than, than good. I mean, obviously science gives us lots of good things, and I'm a social scientist. I believe in scientific method for like seeking truth and functional uh, purposes and stuff like that. But I think this idea that people got a few hundred, only really a few hundred centuries ago, that you could just sort of do away with religion was, like, one of the dumbest and most suicidal things that human beings, like, ever got into their heads. Definitely, Because yeah. it basically is, like, it's like, it's like those people didn't listen to what their, like, Sunday school teachers were saying. Like, they literally tell you in Sunday school, like, if you, you know, if you, if you think you can throw out all these rules and you think you're, you're too good for these rules, you're going to go to hell. And look at what's happening to the world today. Yeah. It's literally going into, like, physically melting uh, hellfire in some sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, how I find the global warming thing to be a, just a remarkable kind of literal um, evidence for, like, the basic religious hypothesis that if you, if you, if you try to live, if you try to organize a society around unlimited expo exploitation, it's all going to fucking literally melt. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> like, and it's literally happening. It's like literally, hell is literally kind of coming onto our earth in some sense. And I just find that like incredibly striking. Oh yeah, like this environmental appropriation, you know, where we see nature as a commodity for us to exploit, um, kind of provoking this, uh, you know, quite literal hell, um, like hellfire burning, all that kind of stuff, um, is really quite a striking metaphor, I think. Yeah. Um, I just want to get some water. Can we take a quick break? Yeah. All right, back in action. Yeah. Something I wanted to say on all of that was that yeah, I think, like, the the idea of God is, is, like, in popular culture, is just so naive and stupid that, it, like, of course it makes religion look ridiculous and, and dumb, you know? Like, the way that, like, atheists and agnostics or whatever talk about religion, yeah, it's, it's like a total straw man. And I've, I have found that, like, the 
the very idea of God is like kind of a red herring, I think, because when you actually read like the the really smart religious people, and when I say that, I mean like whoever you think is smart, like you know when you when you read people who are religious, who who speak to you in, in whatever way, um, you actually realize like you almost don't this this the idea of God as like a thing or entity or person or whatever. It's like you don't you can sort of like ignore that whole question. You can sidestep that whole question, yeah, definitely, and still access like a deep um, sense of the value and significance and truth of like religious propositions or religious traditions. I um, mean, it's not obvious what role God plays in church a lot of the time. Mm. Like when you have like these kind of structures of care and mutual recognition, you're like, well, why, what's, why, why church? Why not just a community? And you think actually, it's a hard question to answer sometimes. Um, it's not obvious what role God's playing there. And then I remember all my Aristotle stuff coming back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's the value I find in that idea. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like I don't really see much. I don't know how much would be lost if we got rid of that idea. Wait, so what, go say more about that. Why, why, why church and not just any community? Um, well, the, you said you, you see Aristotle as having an answer to that. Yeah. Like I think they kind of, um, so like, I don't know. There's an ethical dimension of church, which I like, and then there's the epistemological questions. So, like, when the church tries to answer questions like, how did the universe start? That's when it's on really shaky ground, because that's a kind of scientific question. Right. And it's not trying to answer those kind of questions. But um, this idea of being and being continuous with each other, I think you might only get if you have some sort of thing that's not reducible to any one particular thing. And I think you're going to have to let God creep back in that way. Hmm. And I'm like, ah, that does serve a role for me. Now, it only serves a role for me. I don't really mind if it doesn't serve a role for other people. Because maybe they don't need that. Um, and, and I'm absolutely fine with that. Okay, that's interesting. Sometimes I think about this idea, the concept of God. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to, com- I think you have to completely let go of the, the like, anthropomorphism. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. A, that's a kind of, like... As soon as you start thinking like that, of course it's going to sound You've ridiculous and stupid, and it is. Like if you think about God as a person in any way, you're gonna that's going to be dumb, <laughs> and I'm, I think, um, and I would subscribe to that. Um, even when you talk about a higher power or this sort of vocabulary that people yeah, use, it's just higher even that even that sometimes feels a little bit like woo woo for me. And so, like I've been getting into as I've been more and more interested in religion. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm a religious person. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't really identify as a religious person. If someone asked me if I was religious, I would sometimes I lately I've been, I've been experimenting with saying to, I sometimes tell people I'm like a secular Catholic as a one way to kind of like, I know, yeah, express I that. Like that. I do have these like pretty strong, um, I personally have very strong sort of ethical beliefs and convictions that I do believe and that I do organize my life around and they are largely Catholic in part just because I was raised Catholic and so that's my my personal baggage and my own experience um and I have and as I've been reading people like Simone Weil and like really smart interesting people uh in sort of the Catholic tradition I've been increasingly comfortable with sort of owning it a little bit yeah um but I still have I still don't really know where I come down on all this like sometimes I go to church but it's like just to kind of experiment with how it feels and what it, what I think about it. So I, I know very firm sort of um, position on this. I'm very much just exploring it. But all I was going to say was that um, when I read, like, the really smart, radical uh, Catholic people like Simone Weil, I realize, like, 
you can actually be religious in a completely materialistic way. Like, you don't actually have to have any idealistic notions at all. Like, mm. let alone God as, like, some guy in the sky. Yeah, definitely. You almost don't even have to... You, like, you can actually see it as, like, a as a, as a very materialistic and political type of thing where you, you, you sort of say that, like, look, we have to learn the right way of living with each other. We have to learn the right way to seeing ourselves. We have to learn the right way of seeing each other. And we have to learn the ways in which operating with other people works and the ways in which operating with other people fails. Yeah. We have to learn the norms and the, the behaviors in which if we do them together, everything goes well and we're happy and that's, that's the path of salvation. And we have to learn to distinguish that from the ways in which we sometimes act that lead us to our own misery and that lead us to down a path that has as its only destination hell. And I think that there is like, that is just basically true. Like there are right ways of thinking and interacting with each other that lead to good outcomes for all of us. And there are bad ways that lead to bad outcomes. But the trick is, and the reason why religion is so important is that it's not actually rational at the individual level for all of us to choose those right ways. It's always going to be rash at the, in the short term, sort of rational choice. You mean like that, a free rider problem? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like it, if we think of ourselves as just free, rational agents who can do whatever we want to maximize our own self-interest. Okay. Yeah. If you think about the world that way, and there's no higher power, there's no, or when I say higher power, I mean there's no larger universal ethical obligations outside of our own pleasure and whatever we want to do and can do for ourselves. Um, which is basically the default kind of like morality of capitalism if you don't have religious structure, yeah, sure. I think. Um, my point just being, if you don't have religious structures, which are basically just um, community guidelines around rules, then it's always going to be in the interest of individuals to cheat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that is going to lead to, you. that might allow some of us to get good things in the short run, technologies, smartphones, whatever. Yeah. But it's going to lead to long-term systemic outcomes that are exactly what you read in Dante's Inferno. Right. Um, so the, the reason that you need a church and not just any community and the reason that you do kind of have to have words like God or some types of references to something outside of all of this we can observe and determine scientifically, the reason you do need to have not just any community, like a friendship group, but you need to have a large institutional structure that actually makes reference to something beyond us all is because that's the only way to ultimately ground why we should obey these norms. Um, because like in the here and now it is always going to be worthwhile to cheat and to, and to get ahead in the short run. But we talk about God or we talk about higher powers or we talk about, you know, these like larger universalistic structures. Um, because that's the only thing that we could ever, that's the only thing that could ever remind us that there is a reason to not take the short, easy, selfish route. That there is something else we can access if we forego the short, easy, selfish route. Yeah. And we just call that sort of these things like God or higher powers or whatever. Like, in some sense, like this idea of a higher power, I like to see that as, as a kind of like literal political, in a literal political sense. Yeah. Like, if you. If we all believe that there is a better way of living together and we actually hold ourselves to that, we actually 
increase our power in the sense of like we reach a higher power that we didn't already have and that we maybe didn't even know we could have. But if you enter into that and you believe that you can do that with other people, you actually do enter into this higher power. And it's like a very material, I like, I like to see that as a very materialistic kind of biochemical reality of, of, of human life. Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. Like, I think it's very kind of like liberating as well, almost like it's self-realizing in a way. I kind of find it interesting. Like there's this, I, I can't remember, I think it's Aquinas, but maybe it's St. Ignatius who says something like, um, hell is alienation from God's love. And what he's like, the thing is definitely not as a place. Like, I mean, a place where you go when you die. Mm-hmm. It sounds like alienation is hell, right? So, like, it's when you're alienated from a community. And it's like, what you were saying about, it's in your interest to cheat and act selfishly. It's only, I mean, that sounds like you're willing self-alienation and self-torture. And that is like the kind of capitalist hell, isn't it? So you're kind of like acting for yourself as an atomic, isolated, particular, discrete economic entity that's hell-bent on, quite like hell-bent, sorry. <laughs> um, that was an unintended and bad No, it's pun. fitting, it's fitting. Um, on like maximisation of pleasure for yourself at whatever cost to whomever. Um, and yeah, that does sound like hell to me. And if that's the way everyone's consciousness is determined by modern capitalism, the only way to combat this currently... Um, that I can see is through religious structures and practices that aim to habituate in you a sense of community and continuity with other people. And it's this this thing that I think is really important and special about the Catholic Church. And it's what I think, apologies to (laughs) Protestants, but I think it's what they get fundamentally wrong, is this, you're each an individual. Which you are, of course, but like... You can't realise that individuality as an individual. You can only realise it as part of um, a community of the faithful. I think it is how the church is called. The church is a community of the faithful. And yeah. it's this community I like. Oh, yeah. I think the Reformation was a massive mistake. Like a world historical disaster. I mean, I think the idea that you can have a personal relationship with God is not only, like, loony, but it's... It miscategorizes God as well. Like, what kind of thing is that? Like, a personal relationship with this anthropomorphism? It's not just, yeah, it's not just, right, it's not just loony, but it's, like, so obvious to me that if that's your position, you're asking for, like, a, a the, the future of world history to be absolute chaos and horror. You know, mm-hmm. like, in some sense, if you, have a, if you can have a personal relationship with God, it sort of, uh, it sort of defeats the whole purpose of yeah, like, yeah, a, exactly. a religious community, which is that you don't get to make the rules, <laughs> you know? Like, you can interpret the rules autonomously, right? Like, you can live autonomously. But there are actually true ways of living. Yeah. And there are false ways of living. And, and the, that's not up to you. Like The true ways of living are going to be plural. Um, there's going to be plurality within that truth, but it's definitely going to exclude some things. Right. Um, and I think the things it's going to exclude is going to have to be hatred like homophobia and racism. I would maybe even go I would maybe even go a little bit further than you're going because I would say that in the short term there's no limits. In the short term there can be absolute chaos. People can do literally anything they want. Maybe even there might exist interpretations of religion or whatever of the true life where like hate is a is a necessary and valuable part of the right way to live. I'm I hmm. basically support the idea that you can have literally unlimited interpretations of what to do because in the long run, the ones that work will converge, right? And so, like, 
people who choose like a path of hate. Oh, okay, yeah. You see so what I'm I think saying? That's a different point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like, and to me, this this is like where the whole kind of like positivistic uh, or sort of empirical or scientific, whatever word you want to use, kind of component comes in, which I find very fascinating, and and this sort of convergence of like normative obligation and kind of empirical reality. To me, like there are true ways of living and there are false ways of living and normatively, but also in the sense that the people who do the true way are going to succeed and find that, that the value and the benefit of that true way of living is going to be publicly uh, perceived. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to have resonance in the culture and the bad ways of living, the false ways of living normatively and, and, are going to you be know, empirically to false, false ways of living are going to show the marks of their error. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Normatively and and empirically, right? And so, to me, I actually think you can have... I think that you can have a, a strong religious conviction and literally be happy with everyone doing anything they want to do. Um, but you have to have your convictions and you have to you have to say publicly to anyone who will listen what you think is the true way to live and what you think is the false way to live. And if someone is doing something that is false, you have to say to them, I think what you're doing is bad and false, but you're still my comrade and you're still in this species and I'm still, and I'm still going to fight for you. And, and like you still, we, you, you can still come to heaven with me and all the rest of us who like are going to make communism, uh, on earth. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. Um, I don't know if that, if that's consistent with what you were trying to say, but yeah, I think maybe I'm not. So like, I like this idea that you must be able to accommodate, um, badness or false ways of living so that people can like mess up colossally and think, oh, I thought the correct way to live was to actually walk around um, stabbing and looting and trying to appropriate things and what have you. Um, and then you, uh, and I've tried it out and I'm just miserable. And you should say, well, actually, do you know what? Come here and have a hug and we can, <laughs> we can try again tomorrow. Don't worry about right. it. And that's important. Yeah. I think that has to be important. And this is, again, the notion of forgiveness that we have is it's not about judging that person it's just not about saying well now you've got to feel bad about it for a couple of years it's just saying well it's okay we'll get up and we'll try again tomorrow but what about the idea that you shouldn't even try to stop them this and that's kind of like where it gets a little i think trickier like so yeah i think i think maybe that's true um i'm not sure what i think about that i need to think about it more well this, this is where idea, the anarchism really gets kind of tested right it's yeah like, do, do we want structures that physically and you know institutionally uh prohibit and enforce those prohibitions against certain types of behaviors or is the is the really radical anarchist catholic kind of gambit to say no we have to let everyone do whatever they want but we believe that there are these truths and we do believe that in the long run people who disobey those truths are going to sort themselves out so i think there's a tension between this idea of doing what you want and acting freely Hmm. so like for me freedom isn't just the capacity or the want to do whatever it is you like. Right. It's like acting in a certain way. So I can act in a way that I seem to freely choose that are bad for my freedom. So the classic example is right. like the habitual drug user who doesn't want to be a drug addict anymore, but my God, he can't resist the tasty, tasty heroin. So, you know, like, is he acting or is she acting freely when they go and take the heroin? Well, some people think no, because they don't want to. Um, so I think they're going to have to be, certain ways of living that you're going to have to exclude because they're all conducive to the agent's freedom. And use the community's force to uh, physically prevent it? 
Um, maybe not physically prevent it. So uh, yeah, I need or to like think more about it. it. Or like punish it. Or just like maybe to show them an alternative model. So this is a habituation right. thing again. If everyone's doing like this thing and they're saying this is the way to recognise the good. So like I think it's almost like a language. Um, hmm. It's not a case of like thinking about what you want to do. So like here's an example. I don't hmm. know. Um, let's say like I'm walking down the road and I see a child drowning in a shallow pool and I could save that child with no risk to myself whatsoever. Mm. And I stop and think, should I save the child? And let's say you're walking along and you see the same child drowning in the same shallow pool, and again, at no risk to yourself, you could save the child. And instead of stopping to think, should I save the child? You just run in and save the child. Yeah. Now, I would say that you're the better person because you don't have to stop and think about it. You just see the good thing to do right? straight away. You don't have to, like, you know, hmm, I wonder what I should do. You just do it um, and I think in an ideal setting what you would have is an education system that habituates in the participants in that education system the capacity to recognise the good now that good isn't going to be transplantable so what is good for me to do isn't necessarily what's good for you to do because we're different people with different capacities and different skills but it's still going to have to be based around respect for each other so that's why I want to exclude things like hatred because they're not actually good for the people. Hatred isn't good for the people who are mm. participating in that hatred. And I want to say something like it's not good for their freedom because it's limiting. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think I totally agree with all that. I think that was brilliantly put. I think maybe I was reflecting more on the political question. Yeah, of, maybe. I, yeah. Do you or do you not um, use the community's force to prevent it? Um, yeah, whether that be question. by like intervening physically to prevent it, or by you know punishing it, prohibit it, pro, you know to make it to make it uh, to deter it, and um, you know I think most of the history of Catholicism is like you kind of opt for uh, preventing it, pretty hard, yeah, yeah. Oh. you know. Um, whereas like the, I think like the Catholic uh, the, the Catholic anarchist gambit is sort of like maybe we just let everyone do what they want, but we speak freely and we speak radically about what we think is true and what we think is false. Um, and we do believe that things will converge on the true and away from the false in the long run. And like, if, if people want to experiment with things that maybe I find aberrant, well, you know what? I'm not God. And I, maybe I don't know. And I think that, like, that's, that's actually a really crucial point that, you know, there are certain easy cases, right? Like drugs being one, maybe, where it seems sort of uncontroversial, right? Um, that's kind of like a self-destructive thing that is bad. Um, but there are lots of more difficult cases where we might think we know what is better, but really do we? You know, and like, I think there is this like uh, real humility, and but also just kind of honesty and, and more empirically realistic attitude towards things where we say that like, I like I think people have to have strong convictions and beliefs and, yeah, and people have to be able to say I think this is true I think if you do this you're going to go to hell I think if you do this we're going to go to heaven and people have to say what they think deeply and radically and extremely and 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 without apology um and yet they also have to say I could be wrong <laughs> you know you know and it's it's like I I'm into like extreme intensity in terms of like convictions and belief and then extreme humility 
in terms of like um like empirical inference you know yeah, yeah, sure. um and i think that that's like a really really powerful combination you know and i think but but i think people are very bad at it because it's psychologically it's kind of cognitively dissonant like if you feel really passionately about certain beliefs where you While have certain convictions yeah it, it it is highly correlated it just tends to come with other cognitive and behavioral tendencies to um you know uh be very overbearing or you know yeah, dominating, yeah, dominating or whatever um so it's like i think it's a very unnatural kind of like balance of of attitudes but to me that's like a, a the, the right brew and a very powerful a very powerful brew if if we can cultivate it yeah that, to, sounds right. that to me that's kind of what catholic anarchism like th- that's kind of what i think of when i think of catholic anarchism it's like this idea that like we can have really passionately uh extremely kind of fanatically held beliefs about who we are as a species and what we can become as a species and the right way to live and the false way to live and we believe in authenticity and we believe in objective truth you know all these things that like in postmodern contemporary culture are uh are no-goes yeah are are non-starters right like uh, the average person today, especially like the educated, you know, enlightened person, you know, authenticity is bullshit. Objective truth is bullshit. These things are seen as like, um, as non-viable propositions. But to me, like the, the whole Catholic anarchist thing is like this unique brew where, and it's a certain tradition, right? Where to what, what it says to me is like, we say, no, there is authenticity and we're trying to be authentic and you have to fucking be authentic. And if you don't, you're going to hell. And there is a right way of there are there is a right way of living, and there's a false way of living, and we have to get it right now, and we have to hold ourselves to it every day. Yeah, and that's if we don't, and if we don't there are the highest dire consequences, and these are objective guidelines that exist in reality that we have to that we have to identify and we have to hold ourselves to as a community. And yet, as one limited little creature, I can never be sure that I know what those guidelines are, or I know what those right way what what I know if. I can never be sure that I know the right way from the wrong way with absolute confidence. All I can do is my honest best. And that's where conscience comes in as like a, as a mechanism. Right. But this idea that like, we're all equally kind of confused. Yeah, definitely. But if we all just do it together and we're honest and we report back to each other, the outcomes, like this, this seemed to work well, this seemed to not work well. If we all feedback that honestly, then we should converge on like the actual ethically and empirically correct way for human beings to live. That's end end of my rant. Excellent, right? <laughs> Excellent. No, that, that sounds right. Um, yeah, that's. A, I, I think I probably can add to that. That sounds really good. <laughs> Do, should we talk about other stuff? We don't have to talk about Catholic anarchism the whole time. Well, um, actually, yeah. I suppose um, I've kind of been really confused. So this, I was yeah. thinking about this when um, I was hearing you talking about um, Luther and Protestantism, and as someone who is your friend on Facebook and in real life, um, I've noticed there and possibly on Twitter that you've been talking about the similarities perhaps between people on the extreme right and on the extreme left. Mm. One of the things I'm really bad at picking up on is irony and sarcasm. Mm. So are you being ironic and sarcastic? So like the thing that's right. different in my mind is that the extreme right seem to like be the kind of like again, apologies to Protestants, but like seem to be people who are really keen on freedom in the sense of rabid individualism where people on the extreme left seem to be the catholics but of course this is my prejudice view right okay um 
uh, seem to like have an understanding as freedom as um, participant in the community. And that seems to be quite a significant difference to me. So I wondered what your thought was on the nature of their convergence. Hmm. So I couldn't see why you thought that. Well, okay. I could go in a, I could say a lot of different things. Um, so I guess I'll start with like just a general response. And I'm actually glad you asked this because actually someone on Twitter recently asked me this question. Oh, really? If I was being ironic. And uh, it's like a really interesting question that I had a lot I wanted to say about it. Whenever I have a lot to, want, that I want to say about something, I put it off because it'll take like time and energy. Okay. So now that you're asking, me, I can. No, no, no. That, this is what a podcast is for. It's so much easier to talk than to like write. That's out, true. Right? That's true. Um, it won't be polished, but uh, I can give you. I can give you what's on my mind. I'll, I'll start with just sort of generalities. I mean, I think that. I think that the uh, most people who think anything are going to be kind of dumb and kind of wrong. I think there's going to be like in any group, there's going to be like the, the people who are like really at the edge of like sophistication and daring and really working that, you know, radical frontier of what is really interesting and new and provocatively dangerously true and useful or meaningful is always going to be a small minority. Um, I think. And so that's true on the left and I think that's true on the right. And so like, while I think, while like I find the vocabulary and the traditions of the radical left to be, I, I feel more affinity with them than, than the traditions of the right by far. Um, I think that the, there, there is always bound to be a large bulk of viewpoints and assumptions and attitudes in a school of thought that you are partial to that are going to be, uh, sort of more harmful than useful in terms of like trying to work out yourself on that like far edge of of truth and knowledge and what's interesting and valuable. Uh, does that make sense so far? Yeah, so far. I think. So, um, with that as just like, I'm kind of just like building up a, a little story here. I think if you believe that, then there, you should believe that there is going to be a small minority of smart and interesting people, even in the schools of thought that you, uh, disagree with. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That actually exploring them and taking them seriously is actually going to be like more intellectually and politically fruitful than the greater bulk of the school of thought that you are more more partial to. And so my pro my major problem is that um, in the sort of contemporary sociology of ideas and, and kind of political uh, ideologies, there is this widespread and deeply held assumption that you should gravitate towards and spend more time thinking and spend more time talking with and spend more time interacting with uh, the people in the group, in the ideological group that you uh, most to. strongly identify with. Um, but that is not an intellect. I, I don't think that that's an intellectual or politically uh, thought through proposition at all. I think it's basically an assumption and a kind of, uh, so uh, do you see, sorry, that's the wisdom. 
the move or the drive seemed to be towards to identify with the group you seem to agree with strongly and you think that's a bad thing. Well... Because that sounds like a bad thing to me as well. Like I'm, you I'm, should I'm, try I'm probably doing the horrible academic thing where like I'm saying something very simple in like very long sentences with big words. Um, so I apologize for that. All I'm really saying is that there's this very common sense notion that if you're... If you believe in equality and freedom and radical politics and emancipation and all these, you know, all these buzzwords, then surely you should be reading lefty books and you should be talking with lefty people and you should be using that language. Surely, obviously. I mean, it's not, you, people don't even make that argument. It's a kind of sociological tendency. Um, that turns it's called it, confirmation bias. Is that that one? Um, yeah, I'm sure there's some of that mixed in, but it's also just, it's just like, um, I think, I think about it more as sociology. I think about it as like, the reality is people tend to talk with the people that agree with them yeah, because sure. it's fucking okay. easier. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the reality of it, right? Uh, people sort, and that's a sociological phenomenon. It's not like a... Con- that's it's a nice phrase. It, yeah. Um, and it is like, a, that's a technical term, actually, like in the sociology, in the sociology and political literature, sorting, mm-hmm. right? So people sort for, di- for all different kinds of reasons. Some, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not conscious, whatever. Um, but that's a, that's a sociological phenomenon. That's not like a political strategy, um, necessarily. And when people have, so people have these expectations that are just sociological inheritances. Um, but basically, I mean, I really do, I, I think that the, the, the larger bulk of kind of like left-wing culture is just kind of like common, it, it's, it's, I don't, I don't want to be like judgmental or nasty about it. It's not like, I don't really care that much about it, but it's like, it's just like common sense in like a capitalist culture, like common sense is going to be like mostly nonsense and lies and errors and, and kind of like bullshit conventional wisdoms. Like that holds true on the left as much as anything. Right. So, um, yeah, I might be, I might be of the radical left or whatever. That's my tradition or my vocabulary that I find most useful or that I identify with, but it does not at all follow that. Therefore, what I should be reading or talking about or thinking about or talking with should therefore be in similar milieus. It's not at all true. And in fact, my proposition would be like the smartest people in the forest opposite camp. There are good reasons to believe that that would actually be some of the most fruitful territory to mine. Um, I think. But isn't this what people do? Like don't mm-hmm. people like seek out people that they disagree with because no. they want to have the conversation? Um, yeah, there's a little bit of that in, around the center. Right, so, like, if you think about this as distributions, right, like, uh, think about, like, the left and the right as, like, a distribution, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're on kind of, like, the very tiny, you know, so there's, like, a bell curve, right? Yeah. Um, We're on, like, the very far edge of the left side. There's a very, very small number of people in the world who think what we think. Yeah. um, On on the far left, right? Um, Then, you know, on the far right, you know, think, like, really, really crazy, aggressive, like, um, reactionaries, whatever. Um, very, very small number of people who actually think that stuff. Um, what you just described, don't people try to sort of reach out to the other side and understand different viewpoints? Yeah, the people in the middle do. Uh, the bulk of the people do a little bit of that, where it's easy to do. You know, like... Um, yeah, because there's some, like, minuscule flipping. Right. What is super hard and super rare, not for any logical reason, but I think for sociological reasons... Um, is if you're like a if you're like actively immersed on the far end of 
one of the extremes to really genuinely invest time and energy into understanding what is going on on the really far end in, in a charitable way, it, it, it sort of defies everything that our mind and emotions want to do. It requires an extraordinary amount of um, emotional and intellectual effort um, to remove oneself from one's like sociological affinities. And, and yet, the, okay, so the question might be, why, why do I think that that's worthwhile? Why do I think that that's No, I think useful? that's obviously worthwhile. Like, and it seems like, obviously, like, why... So, like, you, you don't need to convince the people you already agree with, so why do you talk to them? Well, you do, because you're friends. But, like, the people that you should be talking to are the people that you really disagree with. Because what they think, actually, even if it's wrong, there's still going to be something valuable in it, perhaps. Or, like, maybe there's still something kind of interesting about it. Yeah, or I, I would say a little bit more specifically, what, what you should really be looking for there, which is what I'm doing... And, and finding it extremely interesting and provocative and, and almost disorienting in that heady kind of intellectual way that real intellectuals know and are constantly seeking is what you find that the reason you go to those people is to get the best and most insightful understanding of what all the people on your team are doing fucking wrong. Yeah. yeah. Yourself included. And it's real. Like, so the smart, pe- there are smart people here. Okay. Like I need to just say it. There are very smart people nowadays on the radical right wing that are not ra- that are not racist and they're not like fascists. They're not like evil, right? Like people on the left, people on the radical left have this really naive notion of the radical right where we're like, we tend to think of it as like evil, just like as a blanket thing. Like if you're on the radical right in any way, you must be fundamentally wrong at a base level that is obvious and clear and that leads to it uh, undeniably leads to like the worst and most violent implications and conclusions. Uh, I, I think that's like the conventional wisdom on, on the radical left. Like that, that's what most people think, okay, uh, yeah. whether they would admit it or not. And I don't think that's true. Look, I think the radical, I think like the right wing has tons of racists, fascists, sexist, nasty people with wrong ideas that are, have nasty conclusions and nasty behaviors that I fundamentally disagree with, and that I oppose actively, intellectually, and on the streets. Yeah. And yet, I also think, and this is there's no reason this shouldn't be the case, that there are also some weird people who are really fucking smart, who for their own sociological background and interests and affinities, there are really smart people who take those vocabularies and those milieus, and that's where they find themselves, and they are trying to think through their honest thoughts and their honest perspectives and their honest critiques of what they see around them, and they're fucking smart, and they're doing it interestingly, and they're doing it provocatively, and it's fucking fascinating, and it's useful, and there's 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 nothing wrong with saying that. We do not. We there's no need to be afraid of that, but there is a massive fear, a massive kind of like pro, even like a, a kind of blanket prohibition against even thinking or saying that, let alone going and doing it, um, and so. Yeah, that's my attitude towards it. So I'm actively interested in smart right-wing people nowadays because I think that there is a lot of error on and, and, and really lazy thinking and really old, stupid assumptions on the left that kind of characterize the larger bulk of the left. And there are really interesting people, especially with the internet today and especially with oh, sort yes. of... Especially with the crazy ideological fracturing that ha- that's happening right now with Brexit and Trump. I mean, things are opening up in a really crazy way. Maybe for the worst... Maybe, who knows, in the long run, but, like, 
there is a, a fracturing that's happening in which some really weird and but smart people are are doing interesting things, um, and they're doing it in ideologically diverse ways that we might not really be able to map or understand fully until we actually really try to understand something. And I think as a philosopher, you will know that like to really read something or really listen to someone, you need that principle of charity. Absolutely. And, yeah. to, and, and a lot of leftists just can't even access that hmm. to people on the right. And, and the very idea of reading someone on the radical right with charity, 99% of, of leftists are going to say that's offensive. That's like capitulation. That's whatever. Um, but I think, like, I believe radically in extending the principle of intellectual charity to even the scariest of, of, of perspectives. Um, and if, you, if, you're, if you're being honest, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You'll sort the bad from the good, and that's what, it, that's what intellectual life means. I'm abusing my time speaking. I, no, no, a like, I think... Um, there, I'm sorry. I think I agree with you. Like, so I think um, it's definitely necessary to engage in some sort of discourse with people like that you radically disagree with. I'm just trying to like understand a couple of things. So yeah. maybe I've got three questions. Maybe the first is something like do you know anyone on the ra- on the hard right or the radical right perhaps? Um that is smart. Like do you like I mean do you know they're like do you follow them on Twitter? Or yeah, few, I mean only or? recently. Like only okay. with, the, with the crazy implosion of like the ideological spaces and sure. Trump and Brexit. That's been my, my my impetus to sort of, like, I've started to actively... And also, let's be honest, with, like, the increasing kind of stupidity of a lot of, like, the left, um, I think, anyway. These things have sort of... I've sort of crossed a certain threshold, I think, where I was, like... I just became genuinely really interested in, like, what the hell's going on, and I'm going to start digging in places I don't usually dig, because all the places... All the people I'm currently talking to and all the places I'm currently reading and currently t- reading and thinking about nothing's moving you know that that intellectual phenomenon that mental phenomenon where like new insights are opening up and pathways open up and you shoot down them and it's interesting and dangerous you know the life of the mind yeah, like, yeah. when you're really making progress on intellectual things it's there's a certain excitement to it and a certain you you can feel when your brain and your reading and your thinking and your writing you can feel when you're going to, when when things are opening up when things are going down paths and things are promising and you're figuring things out you can feel it and you can feel it when it's not happening. And so in my little left zone with like Plan C people and reading left books and left blogs, whatever, I was like in that for a little while. And and the, the mental, intellectual advancements were just kind of like stopping. Plateauing. Like yeah. I just felt like something's broken. Something's not, something's dead here. So with Trump and Brexit and everything got so screwy, I like was like, okay, I'm, I'm actually just genuinely became really interested in what's going on in these like other circles. Right. So I started like, perusing lots of stuff, just going down lots of internet rabbit holes. And so like, I mean, I give you a few examples and, and these are not, I don't know how much I agree with these people. I'm yeah, not, yeah, sure. Not in agreement or affinity or anything like that. Well, I'll start with some easy examples. Like I met a person recently on Twitter, um, who is a lecturer at university of Portsmouth. Oh, wow. Her name's Diana Fleischman. I did a podcast with her a few weeks ago. She'll be on one of the upcoming podcasts. I'll release it soon, but she's like a, she's a pretty right wing person she's like a total capitalist total libertarian is into kind of she's into like genetics she's an evolutionary psychologist so she's really into into genetics and evolutionary perspectives which often have a kind of right wing often often yeah, go in a certain right wing direction yeah the, well, social yeah that's what people associate it with and you know i think she would admit i'm, I'm not like you know speaking ill of her to, to say that uh 
those ideas and perspectives that people like Diana have do go into dicey political conclusions sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so, but she's like brilliant and really cool and sweet. And we, we kind of just became friends on Twitter and then met up and hung out a couple times, did a podcast and super interesting, super interesting. She's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. Thinks a lot of stuff that I, she, she knows, knows a lot of stuff that I don't know about. Um, and thinks a lot of things that I, not only do I not think, but she says them as if they're obvious. Yeah. And it's just yeah, so fascinating. That's funny. It's so fascinating to hear someone, uh, say things that like you don't even really agree with, but they'll just say it as if it's an obvious truth. Yeah. It's so fun. I mean, it's so interesting. It's like, that is so much more intellectually productive and provocative and, and fun even to, to enter into that kind of, uh, dialogue. Yeah. Like these intuitions are so radically different from right. you and you're like, and my God, this and why, so, so the question always becomes, why is that? Like, why are, why are these, why are these intuitions different? Is it because I'm wrong? Is it because she's wrong? And how do, and let's figure it out. Right. Yeah. Um, like, okay. So that's a sort of easy case. Like she, she doesn't think anything like she's not a racist. Well, it doesn't matter. I was going to ask you about that because it doesn't sound so easy because if you think maybe like along these evolutionary biology and psychological terms, then don't those things give rise to racist views? Well, I would say they can be associated with racist views. Do they, do they tightly and logically imply racist conclusions? That's far from obvious. And, and this is because of the inherent sort of ambiguity in play in, in intellectual life, right? I, I think very, there are very few sort of things in the intellectual life where, you know, a, a necessarily racist, let's say, just to use one category, conclusion, like, necessarily and completely follows from, like, a particular starting point. You know, it's like things just don't work that way. Like, there are so many uh, question marks in any causal chain of reasoning that if you're talking with someone who's honest and smart, maybe their thinking points to what directions that we find dangerous, that we find uncomfortable, that we fear maybe would lead to bad political outcomes or effects. But that's, that's the nature of intellectual life. And that's the danger of thinking. And that's the danger of ideas. Like to me, that's okay. All that's bad is if you are like endorsing violent or like, like if you're, if you're explicitly endorsing or trying to do, things that I find ethically, uh, reprehensible, then I'm going to try to resist that and stop that. But if you're just a smart person who seems to be thinking and expressing yourself in good faith, and you're saying things that I find alien and that seem to be pointing in dangerous directions that I, I maybe disagree with, or if I find aberrant to me, that's not like, that's just something I have to think about and work with. That's not like, that doesn't make you persona non grata. And that's, yeah, the, sure. that's the thing that I'm against. I, all I'm really against is the idea that, like, people who think potentially bad things are persona non grata. I, 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 don't, I don't believe in that. I want to figure it out. Let's figure it out. And, and those people are going to be the ones who are very good at telling us what we're doing that's stupid. And that's what I like. I mean, so I'll, I'll make the conversation even more difficult by going on to harder examples. So, like, one person I'm very interested in is Nick Land. I don't know if you know much about his work or history. I have a funny feeling I've heard the name. He's not the anti-fragile person, is he? No. That's uh, that Taleb. Taleb. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I also like him, but he's not so uh, provocative. He's not so sort of dicey. Okay. Um, Nick Land was a British philosopher. Um, came up in the British academic. He was, he was a proper academic philosopher for a little bit at the University of Warwick. Um, 
I have to be honest, I don't know his work like extremely well. I'm not an expert or anything. Uh, I just know his basic story. He was at the University of Warwick, and he was like, I don't know if, I don't know if he would have said he was a radical leftist or I don't know exactly what his politics were. But back then, he, he was like, at least in sociologically, it was like way more of the left. So it was like he was doing like radical creative writing stuff with oh, cool. academics, and it was like very radical and. I, I would see it as, like, emancipatory, intellectual kind of creative stuff. Like, so he had this, like, group called the Cybernetic Research Unit or something Oh, like yeah, that. sorry, I didn't know, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it was, like, it was like uh, cool people, you know, were circulating. It was a milieu, you know, it was, like, a creative milieu. And uh, he was, like, one of the, you know, forceful figures in that milieu. Also, people like Sadie Plant, right? So it was, like, it, was, it wasn't, like, some fascist, like, group you saw, you know? It was, like, a, a kind of... I would say it's, you know, I don't know the work that well, but I'm just saying it's like an academic, pretty lefty, I think, kind of, at least culturally, kind of thing, whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't really know his whole story, but I know that basically he uh, kind of, well, he was like really far out there. Like he was like not really like a, like a very obedient, respectable academic. And he was like doing really wacky stuff, like creative writing that was like more like fiction than philosophy. He did write some proper philosophy books. He wrote a book on Bataille that was published by a university press. Oh, cool. um, anyway, he basically defected. He basically like went off the deep end, kind of defected from academic expectations or whatever. And I don't know the whole story, but he basically, I know all I know is that now I believe he's in like China and he's like a, he's one of the big, like what they call neo reactionaries. Oh, um, so he has a blog and he has like, he's active on Twitter and he, He's, so he's, like, one of the main forces behind what, what... So what people now call accelerationism is, like, a little kind of, like, bullshit academic cottage industry. But he was, like, one of the real, like, radical thinkers who Within the- initiated that kind of uh, moment. And then you just have, like, these, like, small-time academic, like, entrepreneurs who uh, turn it into, like, a cottage industry. You know, yeah. you know how that works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But he was, like, one of the people who, who's, like, who were, like, really associated with that... Uh, pretty radical attitude and rupture kind of with like the Marxist tradition. Um, and yeah, so you know that idea basically like in a nutshell, it's this idea that like resistance is not only futile, futile, but it's like the opposite of what we should be doing. And the only way, the only way out is through is like one of those, yeah, one of the yeah. slogans, the only way out is through. And so like you, the whole point is everything that's going on in contemporary kind of technological capitalism, embrace pedal the metal baby and yeah. uh, let it roll. So, Okay, so that's that's I just gave you my kind of informal cartoonish summary of of what I know about Nick Land, and that may or may not be there might be some errors in that. Like I said, I'm not an expert at all, and I don't pretend to be. Uh, but that's like my informal understanding of Nick Land. Um, but so now he's like into so he's really into things like uh, you know genetics and things like this that often again are like correlated with dicey attitudes and dicey you know uh, conclusions. But, look, genetics are real. Like, there are genetic differences between people. Um, things like that, right? Like, there are... Um, what What else? Like, uh, he's into this idea that, like... Uh, of, like, fission or, like, splitting, right? Like, one idea is that we need to, like, build movements and organizations to, like, all become one and, like, global peace, universalism, right? Like, that's one tradition, okay. right? Um, another tradition is, like know that you should just split off from people that you uh, don't want to work with and work with people that you do want to work with and uh, let people let people freely enter into and enter out of 
whatever groups they want to uh, participate in. And in the long run, again, it's like it's actually not that dissimilar to what we were talking about yeah, before about like, about like about like in the long in the long run, like what works is going to prevail and what doesn't work is not going to prevail. Um, Sounds meritocratic, um, but I'm not sure if that's how things work. Well, so, uh, well, let me just let me just say a few more things because okay, so I don't want I don't wanna, I don't really care that much about that. Like I don't really have a horse in that race either. Okay, um, but like so other things like. You know these neo reactionary people are like so that they do see like radical Islam as like a ma- as a major kind of threat. For instance, like they see the left as kind of like ridiculously soft on that and kind of naively, stupidly, um, uh, kind of like ignorant or disingenuous even about like th- the badness of of radical Islam and then the threat that it poses. Again, do I agree? I, I, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I do, but when you read these people, you see really interesting. You see really interesting perspectives, um, and so, like for instance, that a lot of those people do think that um, if Western societies really do have open borders and allow anyone in, that like really bad shit is going to happen. Um, again, do I agree? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, that's not what I think. Like, I don't. I'm I'm an open borders kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I'm like I think, I think like we should all, you know, welcome each other into our homes if need be. Um, that that's like very much my kind of like ethical standpoint and and background, and that's where I'm at right now. Like in all honesty, but I, but the idea that anyone who thinks anything else is evil, I call bullshit on that idea, and I you can smell the dishonesty in that and, or I smell the dishonesty in that. And I find that symptomatic. So I'm interested in, as a symptom, I'm interested in the left symptom that sees like anyone who is, who, who is thinking something else as persona non grata. There's something, there's something fucked up in that symptom. Yeah, definitely. And, so like and, that, yeah, unper- that unpersoning of people that don't agree with you is really bad. And like, you know, like that's the very thing we're accusing them of, right? It's like, ah, oh, you're not recognizing the personhood of all these groups of people and things like this, so we're not going to recognize your personhood. Mm-hmm. Is, is it just a kind of, like, internally inconsistent thing to mm-hmm. say? Um, but it seems to be that the thing that people of the left take issue with, with people of the right, is their exclusionism. So they claim that there is, like, a monopoly of truth and they have it. Um, and that their truths are reducible to like these kind of pseudoscientific things that they've discovered where like it seems to be people of the left think that maybe there's like a plurality of truth um that is reducible to like a macro truth to be sure but um that we can allow for a plurality of ways of being which they don't want to allow they want to like have a monopoly they want to say this is the correct way to live in a very and in, 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 not in the way that we mean, like, but in the restricted sense, uh-huh. um, and that's going to be a quasi meritocratic capitalist sense. We're like, not everyone wants to live like that. Okay, I think I see what you're saying, and I think I agree with you. Like that, that's like the good way of seeing things on the left. But, yeah, maybe. But, yeah. but the, the the problem is that, like, in as a public cultural phenomenon, like the left, uh, a very large portion of that actually does, I think, have pretty totalitarian ideas about, like, what 
like you can think. Yeah, I suspect you're right. And so I think that's the issue. So like these like radical right wing sort of like internet intellectuals, um, of which there are a few. I mean, there's also lots of idiots who like, and lots of nasty people. And you know, so yeah, just to be perfectly clear, right? I'm talking about like there is just a small minority of people I've come across who are actually like autonomous, legit intellectual people saying interesting things and uh, really forcing you to think. And do um, they properly engage in discussion with you? They would, yeah. So like, and they're happy to accept your view if you challenge it. Like, and, and you win. So they, they say, actually, do you know what? I've never thought about that before. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, okay. I, I, cool. I mean, like, to be honest, I don't, I'm not, like, exactly actively in dialogue with any of these, like, very kind of far-right-wing people. Sure, yeah. I've only started kind of, like, you know, Figuring like, they are. like, checking out these, like, weird circles, you know? And, like, Diana Fleischman would be, like, the first kind of, like, actual relationship I've developed with someone with on, on the right, like, and kind of far, like, libertarian right, um... And so that's, so anyway, um, like those, the, the smart people on the radical right point to the left and they say, though, that's totalitarian. And I think they're actually kind of right. Like the right wing people are into like, you know, marketplace of ideas. Very, it's very million. Like, yeah. like no, and, and, and yes. And sometimes that's disingenuous. Sure. But you know, the, on the left today, like people make fun of the idea of free speech. Like that's a, re- that's real. Like use the word free speech or the concept of free speech or you say you're into free speech, people on the left laugh at you. The, the, the free speech is now on the left seen as, like, code word for, like, fascism. Um, and that's, like, pretty crazy, I think. I think because we mean different things by free speech. So, like, when people on the left say free speech, they mean free speech. When people on the right say free speech, they mean, you know, they should have the right to be listened to. So, like, if some racist wants to come and stand up in Southampton Common and shout a bunch of racist stuff, I don't think he should be allowed to do that because I don't think he has a right, or she has, they have the, they have the right to, um, you know, like, be make everyone listen to them. At the same time, should they be allowed to say what they want? Then, then yeah. But like, I don't think there's any tension there between not letting somebody go on Radio Four in the morning um, because there are crypto-fascist racist. Right. So, without debating that necessarily, if that's the view, that, there's a way, that view is taking the wager that those ideas that you're calling racist are truly false and truly wrong. Oh, yeah, it was like anti-hypothesis, yeah. Well, I, I, look, so I, my, where I come down on that is, like, I'm down, I'm an anti-fascist. Like, I'm in, I'm active with, like, the local anti-fascist group, and I engage in direct action. And so I'm all for militant physical resistance um, against fascism. I think there are very difficult debates, though, about where you draw that line for the, what equals fascism and what deserves to be physically uh, kind of, like, prohibited through community force. And I think that's where the, the real difficulty comes in. So, like, to me, if Nazis are, are marching in my street... Yeah, I'm going to get together with people in my community to not let Nazis, like, march in the street. Because Nazis marching in the street is, like, an act of, is, like, basically an act of violence. If yeah, you, yeah, sure. You know? I, so I think if you can define it as, like, basically violence, then, yeah, you use physical self-defense to stop violence. Um, if someone out there who's an intellectual thinks, let's say, let's just pull out of a hat, like, a, a really dicey, but not exactly explicitly racist or violent notion, but let's just say like a dicey kind of like one of the random, one of the things you hear in like right wing circles, right? Radical right wing circles. Like, um, 
let me come up with like a right phrasing of it. Like the claim, like someone wants to say there are fundamental genetic differences between ethnic groups, for instance. Take that as an example. Is that fascism? I don't think that it is. Is it right? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't. Um, and yes, it's dicey. Yes, that has connotations that are nasty, that can sometimes be nasty. Yes, there are historical associations with that statement that are scary, that are potentially bad. Um, I'm not saying but, they don't have a right to say it. I'm just saying they don't have a right to say it on Radio 4. Um, okay, I think 90% of people on the left would say that they don't have a right to say it. Is, is that true or is that a caricature? Like, So that sounds like a right-wing caricature of a left-wing person. I think it's pretty fair. Really? Okay. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, at least like in terms of behavior, right? Like the average, like the average lefty Twitter person, like, sure, yeah, like has. sees someone say that on Twitter, their attitude is like, <clears throat> "You are an enemy for saying that." You know what I mean? Trial by um, fire. Yeah, yeah. Let's read them. So like, so like, all I'm really saying is that if there are people who think that type of thing that I don't know about, and that on the face of it. These types of these types of arguments, right? That that on the face of it sound kind of icky to us. Like that sounds icky to me. Like, yeah, definitely. That I, I have kind of like emotional repulsion against that, right? Uh, and I have some, you know, I know I have some knowledge about being suspicious of it, right? I know that there's a history of like racist science, right? I know, like, I know these things, right? So I have I have a combination of knowledge and a combination of emotions that make me highly disinclined to statements such as that. Sure. sure. And that's why, like, I'm a person on the left, right? Like, that's what, right? Um, but if there are very smart people out there saying that sort of thing, and they seem to be intelligent, and they seem to be in, in good faith, I, I'm i not afraid of that. And I want to know why they, they're saying that, and I want to go, and I want to I want to hear that. I do. And And even if they're wrong, and they might be, and perhaps they probably are because most of us are wrong about most of the things that we think. I mean, I come to this with a very, like, as a social scientist, if there's one thing I've learned in my training, it's that, like, most of what we think we don't really know, it's all guesswork. Like, the actual identification of true kind of, like, causal phenomena in society is extremely difficult to have. It's extremely difficult. Um, most things, like, we don't really know. Um, and so, that's just an aside. So, my point being that, like, Maybe all the people that are saying these sorts of things, maybe 90% of them are racists and they're wrong. And like, uh, not only are they factually wrong, but like there are actually yeah, yeah, nasty actually ethical and political like implications coming from it. But maybe there's 10% of the people who actually like just know a shitload of stuff that I don't know. And not only is that possible, but if you have any reasonable amount of humility, you have to believe it's true. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And to me... What it means to be a radical means that we are radically unafraid of going deep into all of those fucking pockets, especially being a radical intellectual. I want, I aspire to be a radical intellectual. That's been my mission in life. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. Ever since I sort of got into, like, the intellectual life and wanted to be an academic and wanted to write books and stuff like that, and, and very much from a left-wing perspective, like, I want to be a revolutionary intellectual. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I, I'm, I'm trying to be. Um, to me, what that means is like being more fearless and more willing than the average person to go where other people are too afraid to go. And that often will mean going too far left, too far right or whatever, but just being willing to do that. 
Um, and in doing that, I have, I have like learned things that I didn't know things that are difficult for me to process and that I don't really know what to do with, but that are interesting bits of knowledge or facts that I didn't have before. So do you want to hear one that I just came across recently? Again, this is going to sound icky, but I'm not drawing any conclusions from this, but apparently it is true. Um, for instance, that like in, um, like in, in Muslim majority countries, like inbreeding is like a serious thing. That's what I've read, and there there appears to be data for that. That like um, Muslim culture like has more in, like significantly more inbreeding than uh, like non-Muslim cultures. It seems to be the case. Maybe I think that may be more of a socioeconomic feature than it is a religious feature. Sure. Yes. Exactly. Totally. Lots of interesting debates and question yeah, marks yeah, that you correct. can throw up. Absolutely. But I had I, I had no idea of that. Absolutely no idea that that was a real thing, because in the milieus that I inhabit. They wouldn't You're, maybe entertain that debate? It's not even that they wouldn't entertain it. It's that even such data points are, like, you don't even access such data points. Like, the entire sort of set of assumptions that define, like, the left-wing milieu are such that you have to take ten active steps away to even hear about such a data point. Is that like the Overton window thing? I don't think so. No, I mean, I think the Overton window thing refers more to kind of like the the status quo kind of policy domain, like what the what policymakers see as possible policy, right? Like what the kinds of policies that policymakers believe could potentially be passed at a particular moment in time, and that changes over time through different types of things. I'm talking about like I was meaning like an epistemic. Oh, oh, maybe. Window. I mean, you can maybe draw a comparison. Yeah, yeah, but, definitely. But um, I mean. Political science research has shown that, like, the ideological differences between left and right, they're not actually logical disagreements. They're different issues. So it's like, and that's really interesting when you think about it, because it's like, people on the left and the right, they're not in the same world with fundamental logical disagreements. They're in fundamentally different worlds, organized around different assumptions and different values and different issues. So it's like, it's not a problem, it's not even a problem of disagreement. It's a problem of radical distance. And non-communication. I think the non-communication thing's true, but I think um, I still want to say there's an actual disagreement, and I think it's a disagreement about the role of the individual um, and their role within a community. So if you think that a community is necessarily oppressive, like just the existence of a community is necessarily oppressive, I think you're in the right. Where if you think like a community existence is conducive to your freedom, I think you're in the left. And I think that's the inconsistency. Well, yeah, there are inconsistencies. I'm probably being oversimplistic with that. No, th- I think you're totally right. There are inconsistencies. But I, but I think, like, the, the bulk of what actually separates people... It's just the focus on... Again, it's like it's, it's not even intellectual. It's, it's sociological. It's okay. like... Or at least that's my, how I see it. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that I, I, I That was another really long rant. I mean, what do you... What do you what do you think about all that? Well, I, I was thinking to... about like um, a lot of what you were saying, actually. And um, you were talking about wanting to be a radical intellectual and things, and you've got this uh, kind of job at the university, a Russell Group University, no less. And um, in virtue of it being a prestigious university, nominally, at least, uh, I'm sure it is, and mm-hmm. all these types of things, do you feel that that imposes restrictions on the things you do? Um, so like, mm. do you do things like I don't know, a podcast with a teacher in Andover 
an anarchist Catholic teacher in Andover, <laughs> and then they're like, oh my God, what are you doing? You can't express these things, or right. please don't do these things, because it draws like um, the university into a negative light, or maybe um, this doesn't demonstrate the academic rigour with which we're associated, and it's detracting from the legitimacy of the department in some way. Or Do you ever kind of get... Um, not censored, but like asked to not do certain things or encouraged to do other things that you're not comfortable with? Yeah, I mean, I in some ways, yeah, I was telling you before, I, I have a little story that of something yeah. that just came up. But before I go on to that, I would say that if I've learned anything from like my recent experiments with like podcasting and videos and stuff like that and whatever I've been doing recently, like, you know, I think academics, especially like, like bourgeois, respectable professionals of any type, have this sort of like, fear it's a super ego really right that like um if they do anything too far out of the norm they're going to be punished for it somehow yeah yeah right but you often they probably most of them wouldn't be able to tell you like a really coherent story about exactly what they would say that would be so bad and who exactly would be so upset with them for saying that that they would be punished for that and you start to realize and i sort of started to realize this like that it's really just like a vague anxiety it's not really like the, the actual reality is, like, no one gives a shit about what I'm saying right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Like, Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? And, like, I sort of, at a certain point, I sort, of, I sort of just realized that. Like, because the first three years I was working this job, I was like, I didn't say anything out of line anywhere. I didn't say anything even creative or interesting, really. I was just, like, uh, very conservative, button down the hatches, trying to get my publications out and trying to, like, you know, impress my colleagues and do the basic thing of just getting adjusted to the role and yeah. trying to succeed or whatever. So, so we all work for the ref, right? I mean, like, and this seems yeah. to be it. It's, it's kind of like an industrial. And, like, no one agrees with the ref system. That's the thing. Like, everyone's like, the ref's terrible and, like, no proper education system would concern itself with the ref. But, you know, this is the game we're all participating in. And it's infuriating because those who can affect that change don't do it. And it right. really infuriates me. But they can. And, and it's it, much easier than they think, I think. Um, it must be. Which is what I'm trying to show. I mean, I'm trying to, in my own little way, like, that's what I'm trying to do, is, like, I think that academics could do so much more and get away with it perfectly fine. Um, like, you know, like you can make a podcast, you can make videos, you can say whatever the fuck you want. The reality is, like, no one's really going to care, like, for the most part. You know what I mean? I think. Um I think, like, eventually, if you're, like, really onto something and you're maybe, like, going hard on it for a long time and you are making, you're, like, resonating with someone, you know, then it could maybe, if you're starting to make waves, then, yeah, there's probably going to be pushback. But if you're making waves and you're doing the thing you wanted to, right, like, that, at that point, it's worth it. So my attitude is sort of, like, with saying crazy shit on the internet, <laughs> basically, um, is, like, it's really, like, a win-win situation because either... I'm just going to say whatever I want and have fun and just hang out with friends like we're doing right now. And no one's going to care. No, that's true. Right? But it's going to be fun. And it's like an inherently valuable, worthwhile yeah, yeah. thing it's to nice do. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to be a yeah. But the worst that's... On one, in one scenario, the worst that's going to happen is like no one cares. Okay? Um, no one really ever listens to it that much. No one doesn't make waves. But also, I don't get punished like because no one cares. It's, yeah. It has no effect. So that would be perfectly fine because it's fun for me. It's fun for you. And I'm working on my ideas and whatever. Um... In another scenario, if, let's say, this podcast goes viral and, oh, my God, Justin said something crazy, uh, and then, like, my, you know, the dean of my, my you know, school, college or whatever, um, whatever the fuck they call it in the UK, says, uh, 
oh my god, I heard this thing online, this crazy, terrible thing that Justin did, uh, and I get reprimanded for it. Well, at that point, if it's bad enough for me to get reprimanded for it, then it means I'm onto something, and it's worth, and it's actually like, it, it will be compensated for by the actual uh, cultural resonance that I'm having by doing what I'm doing. But what if it's reprimanded to such a degree that it makes you nervous? And you stop participating in that endeavour because, you know, maybe you have a material interest, like given the economic conditions of your life, not not your life, like one's life, that one just has to provide for one's own economic well-being. Well, I think the vocation of the revolutionary intellectual is to not be nervous. Okay. Right? I mean, I think that, like, that is the whole vocation. So it's like, in trying to... The, the tradition of the revolutionary intellectual... Is precisely that I have over several years cultivated and worked on. But that's an, like an attitude of privilege. Maybe, like, maybe. Um, you maybe. know, like not everyone would have the luxury of just being like, "Well, if I get fired, I get fired." Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe privilege. Maybe people with privilege can do things that people with privilege can't. And I don't think that's just or fair. Yeah. But I think that if you have privilege, you better be willing to fucking experiment with it, and you better be willing to risk it to do the most powerful shit you think you can do to, like, make waves and, and try to overthrow this shit. Do you not so, think that might debar certain people from the revolution? Um. Or from participating in the revolution? Um. I don't think so. No, I don't think that there's... I don't think that, like, freedom and, and liberty is, like, a zero-sum game, as a lot of activists often do. It's like, if someone, with, if, if someone with privilege is going balls to the wall with their own creativity... It's somehow going to like prevent or stop other people with less privilege from doing it. I don't. I just don't think that human behaviors have those types of effects. Um, to be perfectly honest, I think that there is like a strong strand of resentment in leftist circles, and I think that, and I'm guilty of it sometimes too. I think that we are terrified of seeing even our comrades uh, cutting loose and accessing uh, creativity and experimentation and a certain kind of. Uh, gutsiness or provocativeness that maybe they didn't have when we when we first met them. When we see people really cutting loose and doing creative things and taking risks, uh, we resent it. Or, there's, or a strong strand inside of us tends to resent it. And we tend to see that or call it sort of individualism or like they're fucking off on the collective work that they should be doing. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, or they're like, they're like, you know, taking up too much space. This is like a popular like phrase. They're taking up too much space so people with less privilege can't be speaking out and being creative on, on their terms. But I think that those are all basically kind of like anxious uh, fixations for resentment, to, okay. be, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that like, yes, I have privileges that other people don't, for sure. Um, I think making a podcast, doing whatever, like writing on the internet, uh, I'm more able to do than lots of people who don't have certain resources that I have. Absolutely. Is that fair? No, not at all. I'm completely against that distribution, unequal distribution of privilege. Um, but I think that everyone has to has to use whatever they have yeah. to do the most revolutionary shit they can do, whatever that means. It might not be heroic. I don't think this podcast is heroic. But I do think that like my cultural experiments are me trying as radically as I can to just throw everything I have at the fucking wall to try to make things to shake things up however I can, to tr seek truth in dangerous ways that I'm not doing, you know, in academia, to, to try to, you know, make waves in whatever whatever way I can. People have, to, people have to use everything they have, and if some people have more privilege than others, then that means, like, using your privilege all the more aggressively. And I don't think that that 
shuts out anyone else. If anything, I think it can help other people. Not that I'm like someone's savior or like I'm going to teach someone how to be like a radical intellectual and nothing like that. But I think like when people in, in bourgeois positions in society are like pissing their privilege away. I mean, that's what, that's what it really is. Yeah. Like, I feel like with this podcast, I'm pissing my privilege away. I could be writing academic articles to get good marks for the ref, to get promotions and make more money and get higher position in academia. But I'm not, I'm taking the time that I should be using to do that, to have like authentic relationships with people, some of whom have more privilege, some of whom have less privilege. And I hope that in a small way, when people do this, like it actually makes other people both with more privilege and with less privilege look and see and say like, Oh, I could do this too. Yeah, sure. That sounds really good. So you've, you've not been bollocked for your podcast, have you? Bought? Bollocked. Oh, bollocked. Oh, right. Yeah. So you're asking, and I mentioned this before. I, I recently, interestingly enough, I recently got the first, uh, even slight kind of pushback oh, really? from someone in academia and uh, it was perfectly fine. It was a colleague of mine who I'm friends with, uh, who's been very good to me. Who uh, it was non-authoritative. It was it was just like fr- very friendly, supportive kind yeah, of collegial yeah. feedback, really. Um, but it is someone who, you know more senior to me in in a somewhat of a position of authority. So it wasn't like coming down on me, but it was a little bit like advice in a kind of uh, oh, you may want you to know, stop doing this. Yeah, yeah, you get yeah. what I'm saying. Um, and it was basically because of the videos I made when I was tripping on mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> okay. did, I don't know if you saw yeah, that. Yeah, did, yeah. But yeah, Ariana went to Amsterdam and we uh, we tripped on mushrooms and I like made some video. I just like took some videos while, while I was doing it. And then I wrote some things about it too also. Um, and yeah, I posted them online. And I said like I was on drugs and like that it was cool. And I, I, I wrote some things about it. Was a really, it was actually a really, really, really good experience. And it was a very, very nice time. Um, and I had a lot of cool kind of reflections that I wanted to share. And, like, I didn't fucking become an academic to not be able to say that kind of stuff. Like, I, the whole reason I went into academia and the intellectual life more broadly is because I want to experiment. And I want to, like, share what I think and feel as radically and openly as I can. So, like, yeah, that's something I'm, I'm not going to budge on. And I told him that. I was basically, what he said was, he was like, he was like, you should totally be yourself. I'm not trying to tell you what to do in any way. But I think with some of the things you've been posting, you should think about um, maybe putting them, posting them on a separate account that's not associated with your university work. Oh, um, right, okay. And he seemed, it seemed like a light, he was like concerned about like liability. Like he was, I think he was really looking out for me. It was like, if, for instance, like a student were to, oh, because the reason, the reason why he was talking to me was because some students in his class, he heard students in his class talk about Justin doing drugs. Oh, okay. And so he heard that in the classroom and was sharing that with me and was basically like, yeah, if, you know, who knows, God forbid, like if a student sort of like saw something you posted and then did something crazy, maybe like you would be, they would try to blame you. Yeah. Like, you know, so he was like kind of looking out for like how I could maybe be held liable or like negative consequences of this sort of thing. And I told him very frankly, I was very appreciative of, of his like advice and, you know, um, but I was like, I told him pretty clearly that uh, this is like non-negotiable for me, and that like I, I will say and do kind of what I want to say and do on my own Whatever accounts with my want, yeah. with my name on it, and like my name is an academic professor, and my name is also a person who does what he wants and says what he wants and thinks what he thinks, and it gets its radicalism from doing it all in one place. Do you know what I mean? Once you start segmenting. 
and separating these things off, it loses its force. Yeah. And, and, and so, like, when you... If I were to, like, make some fake pseudonym or whatever and, like, do all my crazy stuff on there and do my respectable professional academic stuff on some, like, formal bourgeois account or whatever, like, that defeats the whole purpose of doing, like, the hard academic yeah, work Yeah, it's like that a disunified person that you've created. That yeah. yeah. And I think the whole point of, like, you know, the march through the institutions, as it were, the long march through the institutions, to use the phrase of, I think that was Rudy Duchka. Uh, but the whole point of marching through the institutions, to, to my, in my view, in my kind of, like, political theory, if you will, is, like, you, it is good if you can, not all people can, but if you, if you can, to, to accumulate cultural capital um, in order that you can piss it away. Like, when you piss away, when you piss away your cultural capital, it only really has an effect because you have that capital to in the store. Yeah. Exactly, right. And so, like, when I was in grad school, I thought long and hard about, I actually, when I was in grad school, Occupy Wall Street happened. And I was, like, so carried away by Occupy Wall Street, so kind of, like, completely radicalized by it, head over heels, that I thought I was, I really considered dropping out of grad school just to fucking be a revolutionary. Like, really. as crazy as that sounds now, I was, like, seriously thinking about it. Um... Because I was like, I, I had the, I had like Occupy Wall Street to do and that whole thing. But I was like, all my intellectual, all this intellectual stuff, all this academic stuff I'm doing, like I don't want to be doing this. I want to be writing radical shit. I want to be like reading the books I want to read and writing the books I want to write. But I was doing this like academic political science stuff. So I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to do podcasts and make videos or whatever the fuck it might have been. You know what I mean? Um, and my advisors kind of like talked me out of it because they were like, you know, you stay on this track. Take off time even if you need to. But earn these credentials, get this PhD, try to get an academic job, and if you can do that, then all the radical stuff that you want to do is going to have way more, way more of an effect. Yeah. And you know what? What actually kind of really sunk, what really like sunk the deal there, was um, I talked with some people. I talked with a lot of people about this actually, because I was soliciting a lot of advice, and including revolutionary, like radical people. Um, and I'll never forget. I, I forget the name, unfortunately. But there was a woman, at a, she was a former Black Panther, at a talk that she gave uh, at, uh, in West Philadelphia. I forget her name. But um, it was a panel, former Black Panther, and she now is like an adjunct professor or something somewhere, so she has like a small foothold in academia. And I went up to her after, and I asked her the question. I was like, you know, do you think it's worthwhile today for people to fight to get into academia, to have an academic role, and then to do radical intellectual work and political work? Uh, and this is like a female, like former Black Panther, you know, and she basically said like that I should definitely do it, that I oh, should cool. go, to, that I should stick with the academic route and struggle through and try to do it and it'll be worth it if I do. And that, that was like, that sealed the deal for me. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm doing. But anyway, the reason I give you this uh, kind of background is like the whole point of doing that is so that when you get a little bit of cultural capital, you can piss it away. And that's what has, that's what has resonance. That's what has cultural effects, or at least that's my theory. Like, if I did a pod, if I made a podcast when I was, like, a nobody in grad school, and, like, no one, I didn't yeah, have any credibility, no one, like, I could say the most radical shit, and no one would give a shit, because I was just, like, some random dude, right? Um, but if you have a little bit of cultural capital, and I'm, like, a legitimated, you know, I have, like, yeah, cultural Russell capital, Group University right? professor. I'm Russell Group University professor. Now, if I make a podcast and I say some crazy shit, people kind of have to listen to it, at least a little bit. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. They can still, they can still, yeah, they can still ignore it, and I'm sure they will. Um, but it just however, however much more, they kind of have to listen to it a little bit, a little bit more, or it has just a little bit more of an effect. Yeah, definitely. So that's, that's, that's my attitude. Um, 
So, sorry, I'm, I'm really, like, I think I'm on a roll, so I'm, I'm now going on, like, long speeches for every question you ask me. I'm very sorry. No, you're grand. Like, <laughs> I, like as long as I'm not, like, interviewing, you're just kind of, like, realizing no, no. I like, come across as, like, me interrogating. I'm like, why do you think this? This is a kind of weird thing to think. Why did you say that on Twitter? That's really bad. Bizarre. Um, no, actually, that's, like, that's like, quite a nice anecdote um, with uh, the Black Panther. Like, I'm just, like, reading about them just now. Hmm. Um, so I was telling you I've read like a couple of Angela Davis books and things and right, the Ashata Shakur book that's so cool um, but I'm just so impressed by like these people and they, they're just so much more engaged and active than I am like and I kind of like go to work on a train and come back to go on a train and like right. for me like being active and doing what I can seems to be teaching kids that you know it's not okay to be arseholes to each other and maybe they should consider you know being okay to each other and things like this and to be fair like I say that as a trivial thing but I do think it's important and if the kids leave the class thinking oh you know maybe we should treat each other with a bit more respect and recognise the dignity of our classmates then that's a good thing I've done but my god when you read like people like breaking out of prison and moving to Cuba and then doing yeah. all these things you're just like my god that's so incredible um, especially like as an oppressed group of people where historically I'm just not an oppressed person at all I'm like the kind of most middle class white European guy in the world um, so yeah maybe like I, I'm just like I'm, I'm super privileged um, but yeah maybe it's just a different way of participating in activism and something I really admire about Dan who you had on last week mm. is just his utter energy um, just constant energy for like trying to help and that's all the motivation is, all the time, with actually most Plan C people. It's just this rabid desire to help as much as possible. Um, for me, like, helping's like, on a very small scale, which is really deeply satisfying. Um, for me personally, mm -hmm. and for other Plan C people, they're helping on a much bigger scale. And that seems to be really deeply satisfying for them personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just like that kind of, like, that similarity between us all it's just this kind of like wanting to wanting just to treat people well i think that's kind of nice hell yeah but yeah i mean i think i definitely hear what you're saying and i i also have a lot of like the utmost respect and uh i take the, a lot of inspiration from people like the black panthers and that whole moment and like those just really incredibly passionate daring ridiculously militant people like asada shakur and yeah all of them um, but you know, there is also like a tradition of, you know, the, the humble worker, right? Yeah. Uh, being, you know, and, and that is also like very inspiring, I think, and compelling. Right. And, you know, I think about people like Simone Bay, right. Who's like very interested in this idea of, you know, submitting to the most grinding manual labor, yeah. uh, not that you're doing manual labor, but you know, um, and you know, and lots of revolutionaries were school teachers. I, I can't think, I think anyway. Or I can't think of an example, but I think that they're... I was you know, talking there, to a guy called um, Benjamin... Oh, my God, why, why have I forgotten his... Uh, Benjamin Franks, who... Um, sounds, is, like, sounds like uh, Benjamin Franklin's, like... Uh, I know, right? Like, like, kind of like yeah. rubbish Scottish cousin. Um, ben, ben Franks is professor of philosophy, I think, at Glasgow, and he's an anarchist. And um, he and I were talking to each other fairly recently, and he said something like the amount of articles they have submitted to their journal um, that are written by people like postmen and teachers, he mm. said, is phenomenal. He said some of the best, most intelligent theorists he knows like don't work in academia anymore. Wait, what journal? Uh, 
why have I forgotten this? Anarchist Studies is one, huh. and who, uh, Ruth Kinner is the other publisher of that. So it's Benjamin Franks and Ruth Kinner are the publishers. I of, haven't met her, but yeah, yeah, she's really cool. Um, and there's also a guy uh, Alan Carter. I don't know if you know Alan Carter. He's like he was Jerry Cohen's PhD student, and then he became like really famous, and then okay. kind of stopped being an academic. Okay. Um, but actually, he was my lecturer at Glasgow for a while, and he didn't turn up to lots of lectures because the story goes is that he was arrested quite a lot of the time and then couldn't get to Glasgow yeah. to give the lecture. But he's a really cool guy. I think he's not a lecturer now. Um, but there's that kind of like cohort of people that just seem to think that being an academic isn't the only way to like you know engage in that kind of lifestyle. And actually, being a worker, you're right, is just another way of of like kind of realizing that struggle. And right. I like to think that in a way, I'm, that's what I'm doing too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe less so. Yeah, well, I mean, I really like what you said before about how, like, one's ethical obligation is to be who one is. Yeah, you know? yeah. I really like that. I mean, I think, yeah, like, I, as I said, I, I, I love sort of the, the, the ultra-left militant moment of the late 60s and early 70s and just the crazy personalities, like, so forceful, daring, uh, passionate revolutionaries of that period absolutely i love it but i do think from a larger historical perspective we can also see that like that didn't work very well also right i mean you know and so when you think about that you sort of like yeah that was like a very beautiful kind of like flowering of revolutionary militants um but really it was just like one of, of one of very many different types of kind of like revolutionary embodiment that we've seen throughout world history. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And definitely. I think, like, I think what's really exciting about, like, revolutionary politics today is, I mean, it's such, it's such like, it's not even a thing, right? It's, like, such a fringe Yeah, thing it's that, super fringe. It's kind of depressing. But, yes, it is. It is, from a certain perspective. But, but, what is kind of cool and liberating is that because it's, like, it, it's so, like, not even a thing, one can really play jazz with with it. In a way that I think, how do I put it? It's like the revolutionary, tr all of the revolutionary traditions have been so defeated, basically, mm -hmm. at, at this point. And revolutionary energy has been so pacified, like ultra-left kind of like revolutionary energy has, has so fully pacified that really it's like we have nothing to lose. Um, like we have nothing to lose, right? So it's like we can kind of look at the entire history of like revolutionary politics and just see it as, like, a whole smorgasbord of failures. Yeah, and, that's true. And, and, and while it's kind of depressing, I also kind of see it as, like, kind of inspiring or exciting in some sense. Because it's like, well, here we are in this, like, tiny, tiny fringe group <laughs> yeah. of people who, for some reason, are still into this idea of, like, revolutionary social change for, like, complete and absolute equality and uh, freedom for everyone immediately. Like, for some reason... We, like, slip through the cracks and we... Not that we're, like, smart or anything. Like, it's not because we're, we're smart or superior in any way. Yeah, yeah, But sure. for some reason, we have, like, slipped through the cracks and we still think this crazy shit that yeah. no one else thinks. And so it's, like, that's actually kind of cool when you think about it. Because, one, not really... Like, no one's really... There aren't that many people really, like, listening or watching or judging. You know, it's, like... And there's certainly not too much to live up to. Because yeah, already, that's true. Because it's already... It's, seen, it's widely seen as dead. Like, um... So to me, I see it as, like, a kind of fun and inspiring, like, ridiculous idea or challenge to, like, how can we, as just a few 
like people um, who can think, who can write, who can do things together, make things together, organize things together. How can we try to just re like reinvent the wheel? You know, like how not not like you know learn from all the past, of course, but you know the just the idea. It's like so absurd almost that I find it kind of funny and inspiring and like and kind of freeing. Like I don't know if that I, I don't know if this is going anywhere. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, maybe I'm running out of mental fuel. But yeah, maybe there's some as well. There's something about that that I like. The very idea of like trying to figure out how to make revolution today is such an absurd proposition that it's a beautiful thing. I don't know. What I find quite funny is you're saying that and in the corner of my eye I keep on seeing the Black Panther picture you have that says revolution in our, in our lifetime right. beside it. And I find that kind of funny. That and I believe saying. that. And I still say that to myself and I'll say it to anyone who will listen. Like revolution in our lifetime. That's what I want. Let's do it. We have to do it. I think it's absolutely, it's, it's ethical, it's an, it's an absolute ethical necessity and yet it seems so impossible and yet it's we have to do it yeah and and like i don't know i take i take i take i guess what i'm maybe trying to say is that i take positive energy from the reflection that everyone else has always failed before us too you know that's true yeah. so it's like yeah i saw shakur maybe like did it in a very impressively, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, badass way, but that didn't really work. So what it means is like, we're not obligated to do that that way, you know, like, um, and th to, to bring it back to something that actually, um, might be a little more, a little bit more useful is like what you were saying before about how, like being who one is, I, it's funny that you say that. Cause I, that's a phrase that I often use in my own head. And I actually, it's interesting that you, you came to that through Aristotle because I came to that through Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. This idea of like becoming who one is, and that's especially fascinating because, of course, he was a major critic of Christianity, right? So that's very fascinating. Um, but that's actually something that like hasn't really been fully tried or integrated into like the revolutionary kind of intellectual tradition. This idea that like, what if all there really is at the end of the day for us to do is for all of us to be who we really are, and that sounds so new agey, and I hate that, and I'm so sorry for that, but. It's not my fucking fault. Um, I think, like, there is a really significant kind of potentiality there as, a, as an actual political project. This, like, be, being who one is or, like, becoming who we really are. But we don't know what that looks like because capitalism's told us this is the kind of thing you are. And our consciousness is so shaped by how we understand ourselves through that lens that it would be quite a revolutionary thing to try and even start to think about well actually removing this lens what kind of thing am i and how do i become who i am exactly i i'm, I'm so i'm so into that i really do think that that is and and to be fair so like you start talking like that people will say you sound like a new age hippie spiritualist individualistic bullshit. i mean but yeah like it's yeah. the opposite like no 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 i know I'm, I'm totally with you but um the truth is that like this idea of like a radical collective uh, path of revolutionary social, like large scale institutional collective dynamics being triggered through essentially inward introspective attitude and behavioral work. To be honest, it's never the few times that you could say it's been tried or the few moments in history where you could say that this has kind of been tried. It was so kind of shitty and stillborn 
and inadequate and un- not really thought through, that on some level, it this idea has not actually really been tried as serious, dedicated, revolutionary political work. Yeah, um, I think there's been misfires because like, exactly. you know, that's, that's it. Exactly. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really and, interesting. And, point. Yes, and people point to the misfires, and I, I, I don't know what you're thinking of, but I'm thinking of like the 70s and like the all the cults and the, the spiritual movements and like the whole New Age moment in the 70s where people, you know, that kind of fed off of like, it kind of, it kind of came after and fed off of the radical militancy when people were like, oh no, we can't bomb shit. We need to like, we need to learn to love and we need to look yeah, inside sure. of ourselves. And that turned into all these cults and then it turned into this like commodified, um, like individual self-help markets. And yeah, all this stuff, yeah. Right. So that's what a lot of people like radicals have in mind when they hear us talking about being who one is as radical politics. People will think of that 1970s moment and the new ageness and the, 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 the commodity, whatever. Um, and they'll say that's already been tried and it's bullshit. But I would say that 70s moment, it wasn't really tried. That was like, um, like a really shitty botched, like yeah, still, stillborn yeah. kind of like, um, uh, how should I put it? Like, um, like twisting or, um, perversion of this idea. Definitely. Yeah. It wasn't actually this idea, like truly thought through and actively organized and cultivated. It just wasn't ready. Like it was kind of like tried before it was properly developed. So like, I kind of, like you said, perversion of it wasn't taken. Well, the perversion of it was taken to its logical conclusion, but the actual, thing itself wasn't tried in essence Um, right yes yeah yeah. um or like you could also say that it was so quickly consumed and kind of twisted and destroyed by basically capitalist kind of like market dynamics wasn't given a chance and also like psychological dynamics like the way that a lot of this stuff turned it like i find that very fascinating like a lot of the hippie like we need to learn to love and this sort of stuff a lot of that went into like weird cults like that's something you see in the 70s it's like weird splinter groups that were basically kind of like cults or like sketchy entrepreneurial kind of like exploitation of you know like gurus and this sort oh, of thing yeah, yeah. you know what i'm saying so like this idea kind of when it happened in the late 60s and into the 70s it went off into all these weird like perverse things but it was the, the key thing to see though is that it if it, it went it was perverted by like uh identifiable mechanisms many of which had to do with the market absolutely yeah. and the others that had to do with psychology and like Soci- like group sociology and like the dynamics of groups and cults and stuff like that right yeah. so, so my argument would be that like yes it failed really badly in that like moment when people were kind of talking in these terms but we know quite well why it failed and to be fair it was only really try- that was only a couple that was only a few decades ago you know yeah. like that's like a blip in like world history right so like it was tried kind of vaguely like once in like a half-assed way but we see exactly why it failed so there's no reason why we can't like Try re-engineer it, it yeah. with all that like knowledge and hindsight and that's kind of like where i'm at dude that's like that's kind of like where my revolutionary political thinking is at like the, very much like what you're saying this idea of like l- learning to be who we really are if you actually do that radically you're a fucking dangerous force you are going to be like so other than almost everything in sort of the dead stultified like status quo and you're going to have reverberations on Every single fucking person you encounter. And those reverberations are going to be almost always in the direction of, like, your liberation and their liberation. Yeah, And it's going to increase energy for you and for them. And, like, energy, I don't mean that in a New Age way. I mean that in, like, a very materialist sense of, like, actual resources for doing shit. Um, And to me, that's, like, a very concrete materialist 
kind of uh, model for how we could actually engineer revolutionary social change. Yeah, it's like on a much more like existential level as opposed to like a kind of macro level. That's quite nice. But but we could we should expect it to have macro predictable yeah, macro yeah, effects like as it plays out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that's just a nice place to stop, actually. Oh, I'm, we've, I'm we've pretty proud. Are you fried? I'm yeah, sorry, man. I'm I, hope I, I hope I didn't over, uh, overtax you. No, you didn't at all. Like, I really enjoyed it, actually. I'm totally Thank fried, you. too, though. That's, that, was good. <laughs> that was awesome, man. Did you enjoy yourself? I really had a good time. Thank oh, you so, so much for inviting me around. I'm really glad to hear that, man.